You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. So Greg Blaskovich just told a story, uh, but he won't tell. <laughs> he wanted to tell a story before we turn the machine on. You might be able to pull it out of me. It's like it was a family story. Yep. I don't want to tell any more than that. I can crack right into it. Actually, I'm feeling like I can share. No, you don't need to. Okay. No, I don't want you talking. Uh, you know, I don't want everybody to know what you tell about your uh, your beautiful wife's family. All right. Well, now I got to tell you. You're burying me here. <laughs> and then. We were commenting on how Giannis, um, how, how gray Giannis getting. He was saying, it looks like if you took a picture of him, <laughs> it'd be like, it'd be like looking at pictures of Obama uh, on the inauguration day and now. And that you guys are on parallel, uh, parallel hair paths. Mm-hmm. He's still got a lot of hair, though. Yeah, I got more than he He's does. He's got a lot, yeah. But it makes you look like you look distinguished, though, man. You got like that George Clooney kind of thing. That's what, going I'm, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. Yeah. If I get, when I start getting all gray, I just hope I got like a big old thick head of hair. But I already got my hairstyle planned out, man. When I go bald and everything, I'm gonna do. You know how dudes that are going bald, they you slick it back. That's no. what I'm gonna have mine be like. <laughs> like my dad does. Look. No, not like that. Like long. Oh, long. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Pony. not. Pony Anyways, tail. Greg Blaskovich. <laughs> I haven't thought this through all the way. I brought it up a little prematurely. 
Greg Blaswich. Is that Polish? What is that? Croatian. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You're a Croat. I'm, a, I'm an American, but yeah. yeah. Croat, I mean, Croat like, descent. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it, um, do you feel that it's bad? Are you still, you know, in, uh, in our changing, um, you know, we're always changing the rules. Can you still ask people, like, if they're Polish or? I, well, I'm certainly not the person you didn't to take ask a, about that. You know, I mean, did, but you I take, did, did you, were you just surprised that I would have asked you that? No, not at all. No. People ask about my last name all the time. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, it was like, what's that, Russian? Yeah, Blaskovich. Then they're like, oh, Yugoslavian. I was like, no, it's Croatian. So the Croatians, how long has your family been in the U.S. forever? Like, are you like an American mutt? <laughs> oh, my mom's side, uh, half of her side has been here in here since, like, I think before the revolution. The other uh, early 1900s from England. My dad's side was late, mid to late 1890s from Croatia and Italy. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's the thing. Is like, you know, I, I'm Italian by name only. Now, my old man, when he was born, he, he was raised up by his grandparents, and they spoke Italian in the home. Did he speak it? He, by the time he, like, by, no. I mean, by the time he died, I mean, he was, it, it meant it was nothing. Yeah. I mean, he, he would, like, get, like, if, you know, if he was eating some spaghetti or something, it might have, like, some nostalgic feeling or something. But, uh, but no, he, it was, like, no yeah. real use for it. But he carried with him. Um, a lot of uh, uh, strange stereotypes about other ethnicities <laughs> that you would have that, that he brought over the biases that, from that the old country. That felt like yeah, like that felt quaint. Like he would have these ideas that um that that Hollanders, who we'd call Hollanders, like you would never go to a, a yard sale that a Hollander was throwing because Hollanders tended yeah. to overvalue the shrewd Dutch. They tended to overvalue the things that they owned. Yeah. So he had a lot of things that are like part, like he'd have like biases. Yeah, but biases against again people who'd been in the who'd been in the country for so long. But he was raised in Little Italy in Mm -hmm. Chicago, so he cared. Like he would talk about going and getting beat up by the Irish kids. You know what I mean? So he had like a he had like a um, he he viewed American culture still like last names meant a lot to the guy. Yeah, is what I'm getting at. Well, you know, I uh, I spent a lot of time over in Croatia. I'm the first one in my family to have like gone back. You know, it wasn't really like a going back trip, but I always wanted to check it out because of my last name. And so I did in college, and then I just kept going back. Got a good uh, base of friends over there. Did a little bit of uh, work for a political party, that sort of thing. But like, I can't speak it. At one time, I could like get around it. Like, oh, is that right? Get in and out of taxis and like order food. Couldn't have conversations. It's an extremely hard language. But uh, yeah, the Latvian lover here has never been to Latvia. Really. I would have thought you'd been over. There's more. Uh, yeah, there's I gotta more, see this. Rant. There are more Latvians. There are more Latvians Power. here in America than there are in Latvia. There are more Croats abroad than in Croatia. There's 4.5 yeah. million in Croatia and like no, I don't think that's true. seven that's something true. million abroad. No. Someone lied. To it me. wouldn't surprise me. Maybe worldwide. Mm. <clears throat> that's how it's it more is in abroad Croatians. than there. Yeah, there's tons in Australia. Croatia. All right, now Greg, set the scene for me. T- tell, tell what you do now. I'm a PhD candidate who studies political communication. At Stanford. At Stanford, yeah. Now, what lab? You're in a, what, what's the lab? I'm in the political communication lab. Yeah. So I, you want me to give a background on it? Yeah, but I want to ask this first. I, I think we might have talked about this at some point in time. We're going to talk about what we're going to eventually get around to talking about here is, is some of Greg's interesting work in, um, as far as public perception, public opinion about hunting. But... Did you and I talk about years ago when there was a news story that came out? I feel like it came out of Stanford, where they were polling ahead of a, a gay rights initiative. 
It doesn't ring a bell. And no. they would have, they would like poll neighborhoods to see how they felt about an mm-hmm. initiative. And then they would have gay couples go and canvas the neighborhood. I know what you're talking about, but we didn't, we didn't talk that about that. I, I thought I asked about that. Nice. You know about that? Yeah, just vaguely, but yeah. But that, that, wasn't, you know, I didn't, that wasn't a Stanford thing? We had, we, no, we haven't discussed that. Oh, yeah. Do you know that study well? Not well. I know of it, right? And it was uh, people respond differently, obviously, when the when the canvassers are gay. Yeah. So yeah. you'd like you'd call up a dude's house and be like, "Hey, man, how you feel about this? Uh, you know, the gay marriage bill coming up?" Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, "Hell with that." Yep. And then, you know, a, a gay couple go to the house and be like, "Hey, man, just so happens this kind of thing affects us directly. We're your neighbors. Keep us in mind." Yeah. Then you call that dude a while back. You know, call him a while later and be like, hey, man, how are you feeling about this gay rights initiative? Oh, you know, I can see both sides of it. You know, like, people <laughs> yeah, would yeah, change yeah. their, like, just, like, the smallest amount of exposure. Yeah, people got really excited about that. For some reason, I feel like... But then uh, I felt like it was discredited, that. though. Yeah, yeah, that's what... That's what I wanted to ask that's you That's what about. I'm... Uh, I feel like I, I, I heard the same thing. Because part of me is thinking, man, I feel like there's another yeah. side of this coin. Like, I heard it, it, it didn't work out kind of exactly Yeah, that it was billed... It, it, made, it made the news mm-hmm. and was billed as this sort of breakthrough and then some more details emerged and it wasn't as revolutionary. I mean, it was of a, kind of too good to be true to begin with. I mean, if it retains some credibility, I don't want to like slander, but it would be amazing if you could change people's uh, entrenched views simply by having them meet, you know, a member of a certain community. For, right. Like your, we could solve racism. Door, yeah, at your doorstep for a yeah, couple minutes. Yeah. I mean, that would, to have that effect linger for uh, however long they had after the, uh, after the exposure would be Incredible if it was like the two weeks you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now break down what you all are about there. What, what's going yeah, on? Yeah. So uh, originally I was in a PhD program in political science down at uh, UC Santa Barbara. And uh, so how traditional political science studies uh, polarization, you know, like political polarization, uh, how they've done that, they've never really been able to generate consensus on whether American society is polarized. To a lot of people who don't study politics, that elicits kind of raised eyebrows, right? Because it's like, what are you talking about? Like, it's so divisive out there. Mm-hmm. But what they've done um, is, or how they've defined polarization, is whether or not people's ideological viewpoints are moving to the left and the right, devoid of partisan labels, right? It's like, how do you feel about issue A? How do you feel about immigration? Here's seven possible responses. You know, pick your favorite. Uh, and when you don't have party labels, you know, everyone just answers what they, what they feel. Uh, and it's not a bipolar distribution. It's a totally normal distribution. We're a center-right country, kind of always have been. We're all capitalists. Um, and uh, essentially, it was, you know, it was kind of grappling with this idea of like, well, it feels like it's certainly really heated out there, and it feels like it's polarized, but this isn't really capturing it. And so, But back up, I don't understand. How, how, what do you mean by not capturing it? So if you had polarization, Defined yeah. by people's ideological viewpoints going farther left and farther right. Okay. You would see a bipolar distribution of responses, right? You yeah. would have like, oh, those must be the Democrats. Oh, oh must I'm be with Republicans. you now. I'm yeah. with you now. But we have a normal so distribution. Like, like, we're if a you centrist just, country in terms of just the, our policy positions. Like if you were to ask guy. people, you give them like uh, one to ten, pick your favorite number. If half the country picked one and half the country picked yes. ten, you'd be like, man. That's a bipolar distribution. But basically, we still have a lot of fours, fives, and sixes. Yeah, that's where it centers around, for yeah. sure. Yeah, there's, it's only the tails where it gets really like, uh, 
ideological fringe, you know? Because I feel like that's the only story you've been hearing is about how polarized we are now. Well, so this is where, so I think we are polarized, but we've been, um, I mean, I don't think that's a bad metric, but it certainly doesn't capture what a lot of us are feeling. So I got interested in the concept of what we now call affective polarization. I started studying this at UCSB, and it's basically taking a social psychological approach and saying, you know, I think what we're seeing out here in terms of kind of the heated politics is more how Democrats and Republicans feel toward one another. Okay. Like, how do I regard Republicans or how do I regard Democrats rather than like, well, what's my ideological aggregate score on all the issues? Um, and, and my now advisor at Stanford, uh, Shanto Iyengar, has done a lot of good work on this and basically demonstrated that over the past 50 years, you know, this affective bias against our party opponents has skyrocketed. Is that right? Yeah, and um, that it's now just, you know, you can basically study it like social psychologists have studied race and ethnicity and religion, uh, all these kind of in-group, out-group differences that we, we kind of think about classically. You can do the same with politics. Um, and so I'm in the political communication lab, and we're really focused around kind of this concept of affective polarization, or it's called partisan affect, but it's basically, you know, the biases between in-groups and out-groups. And I just happen to study uh, folks who label themselves either Democrats or Republicans. You're only interested in people who label themselves that way. Well, the vast majority of the country does, right? Yeah. And how we capture it. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and what's critical, though, is you have to include the independent leaners, right? So if I'm like, how do you identify? Democrat, Republican, independent, won't say, you know. Most people answer. A ton of people say independent. You know, like a lot of people who call themselves independent tend to lean towards one party or the other. Like, if you had to choose, you know, uh, which way do you lean? And we. We offer them leaning Republican, leaning Democrat. We, off, we still offer like strict independent if they, if they really don't want to say. But that question gets most people um, to admit that they actually lean towards one another. Because yeah, I, I mean, like, you know, we're all rational people. I think we look at the facts in front of us and just make like a, we have issue-specific positions, right? And then at the end of the day, we make a judgment about like, okay, well, I tend to lean towards this party because I've added up all my positions or something like that. Yeah, that's where I have a really hard time. <laughs> it is hard. I've never made the jump. I've never made the lean. Like if you get if you if you threw twenty thirty things at me, right? Yeah, I feel like I'd it'd be split. But are you so? If I put the I said Steve, you're deciding who's going to win this next election. I don't know, random election in uh, in Washington State, right? Yeah. And I would say you're just going to pick the party, right? And I said pick a party. If I did that ten times, you're telling me five and five equal split? Something. I it depend on the people. And but you don't understand how in depth I get about this stuff. I actually play because yeah. I like as I ex- I want to get to the hunt part of this pretty quick here. But I want to say this: I'm so averse to radical change. I am too. That I actually yeah. will look at like the tug of war. Mm-hmm. I'm like a guy that walks up to people playing tug of war, and I'd be like, "Oh man, those guys are getting their ass kicked." And I want to jump help. And, and help them not yeah. get their ass kicked because. I'm always playing like um I like like I know people like to complain about gridlock, but I like I like pretty slow measured movement. Absolutely, I don't like might, radical yeah. herky jerky movement because like if you're any kind of a student of history, you realize that radical um, when you take radical departure from courses, it tends to veer wildly and have a destructive period, and then get corrected slowly back the other direction. So to save all that, I kind of like things to move pretty. I mean, Slow and easy, and I have, but I always have my eye on, a, on, on some issues that I'm inflexible about. Yeah, I think you're preaching to the choir there. I mean, I don't like unified governments. I like a, I like a split legislator, legislature. Um, 
and yeah, I like change to uh, come slowly. I think it's important, but I think if change can happen too quickly, that's where you get into you get into trouble. So uh, I guess I'm establishment in that. Oh, I'm way that, established. Yeah, man, in that yeah. sort of. Uh, I know being sense, being anti-establishment is cool as shit right now. It's super cool. I don't but know I'm, what to but do. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, geez, I'm, it's not fun to be. A, it's not fun to describe yourself as establishment. It's, it's certainly not at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, but then I, I look at. I uh, live out in the Bay right now. Yeah. One of those elite establishment folks. Exactly. Yeah. So now, okay, get us around to the park. To, to get, get us. Get, you can you can step away from it, but approach the park, approach the hunting stuff, then then pull back away if you want. Okay. Just give us a little teaser. The teaser of the hunting stuff. Yeah. All right. So you know, as an academic researcher, I have a, a series of methodological skills. Right. I I tend to prefer the experimental method, uh, and so I was like, well, let's run an experiment on. Uh, people's perceptions of hunting. Specifically, I wanted to look at non-hunters. And this question that kept coming up in my mind uh, was generated by things like, you know, hunters make up a tiny minority of the American public, but the vast majority of the American public has generally positive feelings towards hunting in the United States. Yeah, lay some numbers to that. Five, six percent of, five or six percent of Americans buy a hunt license. Yes. Um, now, people always like to then point out, like, oh, yeah, but there's all this hunting, like, you could, you know, you can go to... Remember when Mitt Romney... Just oh, saying, yeah. like, oh, yeah, I like oh, to hunt. man. And then people were like, funny, because you never bought a hunting license. Yeah, make And then someone pointed up, that, oh, you can hunt varmints in Utah without a he hunting license. So he's like, oh, yeah, but I hunt varmints. That's why I never bought <laughs> well, a hunting license. Could, you could be a rabbit <laughs> squirrel yeah, hunter in Montana and never buy a hunting license. I, mean, I don't Randall think you can. Williams talks can about you? Can you? I feel like in Montana, I don't think you can hunt small game without a license. But it's, not, not, it's, a non, it's non-game, but I think you have to be a license holder. Don't you have to have a conservation license? I hate arguing about something that's yeah, we so don't know easy to like. like. There's like a right and wrong. be very easy to check out. Yeah. Anyhow, he had found, his people had found mm-hmm. a way for him to sort of maintain despite his yeah. lack of hunting licenses. He did walk back the varmint thing. You know, because first he went like, oh, varmint hunter. People are like, really? You're like a passionate varmint hunter? Your whole- <laughs> <laughs> like strictly varmints? Uh, and then he was like, yeah, I, I only really went hunting twice. Once was on the campaign trail and once was when I was... Uh, I was with my cousins, you know, as a kid. It's and that's a, fine. It's just, you know, people are really desperate to show their that, uh, but that even, that every even, guy. You know? Yeah, that plays into what you're saying. So 5 or 6%, right, of the American population mm-hmm. buys a hunt license. Yes. Twice as many. Twice, uh, you know, about 13 million, or no, not about 13% buy a fishing license, I think. There's, yeah, there's certainly a, a larger population of anglers than, than hunters. And hunting, but hunting still enjoys such a big approval rating mm-hmm. that it's a thing politicians do is try to like establish some hunting credential, which is weird because you're trying to like establish, you're trying to forge a link yeah. between you and five or 6% of the American population. Yeah. But it's a potent symbolism that goes beyond that. Because remember like John Kerry even did that hunt? Oh yeah. He did yeah, a yeah, goose yeah. hunt where he's trying to act like he's like Joe hunting and he did a <laughs> goose hunt, but then they didn't want him to be filmed holding the gun too much. So he had a guy next to him carrying his gun, yeah. which then he already had a problem with elitism. It <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, was a bad op. Yeah, then here he was. He's already got like a big elitism problem and like being too patrician. But then here he is with some dude toting his gun for him on, yeah. a, on a goose hunt. I mean, know? it's like ubiquitous. Like every candidate tries to demonstrate themselves as a, uh, as a hunter. I mean, Paul Ryan's uh, Secret Service code name was Bowhunter. But he is a hunter. He is. He's, yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying that Paul Ryan isn't. He is a passionate hunter. But I just mean, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of candidates try really hard to establish themselves as kind of this rural. Yeah, Paul Ryan's yeah. a big hunter. There's, yeah. the, there's the right side of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Martin Heinrich's a big hunter yeah. on the D yeah. side, of the, the, D side yeah. of the aisle. It's good to see, uh, but it is funny when there's the 
totally urban establishment candidates trying to pretend yeah. that they're a rural hunter. So, oh yeah, yeah I like man. to shoot critters. Um, all right, so there you are. Yeah, and I'm thinking about this divide, and it's like, well, it's an interesting question. Like, why is this happening? So there was that. Uh, there was that kind of aspect that made me start to wonder maybe I should. On you were curious, why is it happening that so few people do it, but it has, well, but what, it enjoys What about hunting is resonating rate? with so many people who don't hunt? Right? I got, yeah. I'm and you. then uh, on the side of that, I think, you know, I've, I've only been hunting for a few years. I mean, I, I guess you could say I started in college, although I kind of wandered around the Elkwoods uh, a few times, not knowing anything about what i was doing i don't even think i played the wind it was just kind of like trampling through leaves yeah. with the rifle which sometimes works for people <laughs> it sometimes works it didn't for me unfortunately um and then you know when i would I, I got interested in hunting because well i think it's always occupied kind of this nostalgic uh imagery in my head uh you know when i was young i read books of like the hatchet and you know stories of survival western stuff trapping stuff i loved all that's that. funny i was just trying to read the hatchet to my kid but he's not quite there yet not there I just gave uh, a hatchet plus the book, The Hatchet, to uh, my nephew for Christmas. How old is he? He's 11. I yeah, I read, I read to my six-year-old, and right away it's like talking about divorce. And it's just like, yeah. I was, let's just put this one away. Did I shoot too high with 11, <laughs> or you think that's... No, it's good. Okay. But you're like, what the hell's divorce? I'm like, well, we're trying to read about a kid getting lost in the woods, and I got to explain, like, no, I need a mommy and a daddy. <laughs> it's <like> wild tangents. <laughs> um, but yeah, so when I, when I talk about, you know, as a new hunter, I kind of feel... Like there's, uh, or or maybe it's just simply living near uh, almost nobody who hunts, you know, like an urban Bay Area. Um, but people are genuinely interested in it whenever I bring up the fact that I am a hunter. Um, and I found that listening to other people talk about why they hunt with whatever audience they're speaking to versus, um, you know, some arguments I may use, there tends to be different receptions sometimes, right? And okay. I, so. There was five that I test in the study that I've always been interested in or that I've kind of logged. and am like, man, I wonder if that actually does anything, right? And one is hunting is tradition. Oh, let me stop you. Sure. Okay. That was the teaser. Oh, all right. Is this the main thing you work on? No. You the, main, you the main, okay. So you want to the, talk about my, like, my dissertation. The, but the hunting thing is a side project. It's a passion project, yes. Okay, it's a passion project to what? I don't even know the answer to this. I just know you for the hunting thing. So you want, so just like what I do in my day-to-day life is I study this affective bias between partisans. And specifically, uh, so my lab has shown that, okay, there is this affective bias that exists between Democrats and Republicans. And how I'm kind of advancing the ball down the field um, is I'm wondering what happens to this level of bias when people are under various <coughs> cognitive states. So, so I, if you're drunk? No, oh. no, no, not drunk. <laughs> I'm talking about like psychological mechanisms. I'll tell you what happens when they're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Get a lot more confident about it. Uh, yeah, I study a concept called uh, group threat as well as self-threat and self-affirmation. I mean, I don't want to get too like... Beyond no, no, the I'm, tra- here, I'm tracking okay? though. All right, so um, l- I'll just lay out an experiment for you, right? So let me stop you real quick. Mm-hmm. The stuff you do with hunting, because that was the teaser I wanted you to give, just to make sure people didn't think they tuned into the wrong program. Yeah, I can see that. Now, so you're dicking around hunting. But that's not the main thing you do. Nope. It's a side, it's a passion that's project. A total a passion side. project, yeah. yeah. So what a I, time-consuming side project. Man, you know, I love spending my time on it. Okay, so now, in a, in a nutshell, explain what you do do. So I study the like your main thing. Yeah. So my dissertation is on the... Uh, influence of various forms of cognitive threat on affective polarization. What's a cognitive threat? Like you think uh, it's something's going to happen to you? 
Yeah, so the two that I study are self-threat and group threat. Self-threat, in a nutshell, uh, case is you know, you feeling bad about yourself in some particular domain, and group threat is how you feel when, when your group is being negatively evaluated. So if I was like, hunters are a bunch of rednecks. That's group. That's a group threat. And if you say to me, you're a redneck. That's well, <laughs> no, if I'm like, you know, you lack integrity in some way. You know, like, you're, yeah. dis, you're a disloyal friend to Yanni. You know, that's self-threat. Really? Yeah. Self-threat? You know, it's, it's uh, you're internalizing some judgment on yourself. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, and I can run you through the dissertation, but it can get a bit wonkish and dense. Well, just lay it out on me a little bit. Right. I'd love to hear all about it, but yeah. just in the interest of time. Okay, so in a nutshell, uh, when people experience self-threat, they lash out against political opponents in a totally unrelated domain. So I, so I think it'd be interesting to talk about the dependent measure that I'm using to measure affective bias. Is known, it's an economic game known as the trust game. Have you heard of it? No. Nope. All right, so there's a player one and a player two, right? Like, let's say you and Yanni are, are you're player one, you're player two. I say, I'm going to give you $10, right? Yeah. You can give some, none, or all to Yanni. Okay. Uh, after you do that, I'm going to take the amount you gave and I'm going to triple it. Now, he will have the opportunity to give some, none, or all of that amount back to you. How much are you going to give to Yanni? For real? Sure. Yeah, but. I'd have to like sit and think about five bucks. Five bucks. Okay. <laughs> like so if right now yeah. you gave me 10 and mm-hmm. we're together, I'd be like, well, I'll give him five. Yeah. But just well, I guess no, we'd have no to- reason whatsoever. <laughs> well, the interesting well, thing about the trust game is, so you have the opportunity to both make more than $10, right? Like, if you're really generous, it's like, let's say you give 10, you know, and you triple it. He has 30. You can each make 15. But you could just give this guy 30 bucks, and you could come away with zero, right? You know Yanni. He's a nice guy. And you, so you could probably feel comfortable laying yourself out there with the $10. But if you're, you yeah. see some person who's like, okay, this is player two. You've never met him. And you're but trying on, to but size you, but him But you're up. getting into, like, that me and Yanni both know the rule. Yes. Like, you, you, you present this to us. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I feel like... I would, we would exchange a quick glance, realize we were onto something, and yes. I would give him all the money. Yes, and this, in the way that I'm doing it, I'm not bringing two buddies together and having them play it, right? Like, so you're talking yeah. me and a dude just coming down the road. Yes, you'll never see him again. And frankly, this one's over the computer, right? And there actually is no player two. We're only measuring the participants as player one, but they have to make judgments on how much money they're going to lay out, and they only have a little bit of information about player two yeah. to craft their judgments with, right? And of course, we put in a par- uh, party queue. Um, so it's like age, race, annual, yearly income, party. And these are questions that the participants themselves have, uh, have filled out. So it's not like inconceivable that we created a profile for a player too. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. it's a gender studies professor on their way to yoga. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I Do mean, we, we get- actually get a little bit more heavy handed. <laughs> we're like 41 year old white male, uh, Republican who makes $90,000 a year, you know, that sort of thing. Do you want to play with him? We're not like, yeah, we're not like absent-minded <laughs> professor from Portland. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, not do you want to play, but how much money are you going to give, right? Because if you're like, man, I just don't trust this guy, you're not, you know, I'm going to yeah. give none, I'm just going to keep the 10 bucks. Or like, you know, you're going to, uh, you're going to hedge your bets a little bit. Um, and it's, it's a tried and true method for kind of demonstrating the, the biases that people have. You know, when you're just flipping one cue, you can literally see how much more people are willing to give to, you know, whether it's a co-partisan versus party hey, opponent. Can I guess, can I guess that people will tend to give more to someone who they're, on the same team with. Of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's tribal, See, I'd right? game that stuff too. Yeah, but you can think about it and beat it, for <laughs> sure, but people don't, right? 
Yeah, I'd be like, yeah. I, I wouldn't agree with that lady on anything, but I would give her some of the money. Yeah, but she might not give it back. You yeah. know? All right. Yeah. So that's what you mean like to do. So that's, that's the measure I use for bias. And, I, and uh, so remember, like, it's, it's latent in our society. Like, there just is affective bias at all times. Mm-hmm. People are always preferencing the in-party against the out-party. So usually, you know, in social science, if, uh, or oftentimes in social science, when you're trying to measure whether or not there's some phenomenon occurring, it's like, you know, if I show people this picture, do they do some uh, consequential action? Why, right? If I show them A, will they do B? Yeah. And it's against, like, in a control group where you're not showing them A, um, you're, you're usually measuring any effect against null. Like, nothing happening versus something happening. But because we are a biased uh, community right now, there already is this affective bias. When I'm studying the impact of threat, uh, and I'm talking about self-threat increases affective bias against party opponents, I'm talking about already, like, it's, it's an increase in bias over an already biased um, control group, right? Which I think is remarkable that uh, we can, like, we always think... Um, it's as bad as it can get, the political rhetoric, but we seem like incapable of, of uh, you know, not being able to. Or we, we seem like we can quickly kind of turn up uh, how much more angry we'll get. You know, feel bad about myself, I'm going to lash out against this yeah. party opponent. And I also study like group threat, like what happens when people are, um, you know, when the, a credible source is passing judgment on Republicans or Democrats and that sort of thing. Um, and then I also have a study, my third and final study of the dissertation is <clears throat> a real-world examination of whether or not electoral loss constitutes group threat. So we're looking at Democrats versus Republicans' responses to the, uh, the presidential election. Oh, okay. Now, I haven't actually analyzed the data for that yet, so I can't say whether that's the case, but that's what I do on my day-to-day, uh, my day-to-day PhD study, I guess. And yeah, I this is a tricky everywhere. cycle, though, because the... Because the 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 party is is so redefined. The Republican mm-hmm. Party just got so redefined. Yeah, and you have uh, so you have a lot of people who are like just discovering the Republican Party under its new form and excited about it, and a lot of people who have been Republicans for a long time who are a little apprehensive about what the party's up to. So yeah. it'd be tricky. And you've got Democrats who are pissed about the primaries right? yeah. on both sides. Um, so yeah, it is tricky. I agree with you there yeah. for sure. All right, so for the hunting stuff. Yeah, so I mean, you, you knew yeah. about you isolated five arguments that dudes like me give. Yes, for I think you, Steve, give particularly good ones. Um, but you know, especially in like whitetail country. Like, well, hold on, can we get back to that? Because you're you, when you started this, when you're laying it out, you're saying that arguments that guys like we give, not ones that you give, as kind of a new hunter. Right, you're just saying the ones that are um, out in the out in the ether. Okay, I think I presented that wrong because I don't want to say I've got this golden argument. Everyone should be making, but the same no, you just noticed that there was a difference in the reaction. Well, maybe it's even like the the you know variety of arguments I give. Maybe I noticed sure. that like some okay. people are responding to some better than did others. Did you set out to be like I'm going to make a list of five, or did you look and say like here's what's out there? Oh wow, it's five. The latter. Yeah. Okay, um, and in some of it, you know, because it's not my my usual area of expertise. I don't have this like literature review that I'm able to draw on. So some of it was just kind of like my best judgment, right? Yeah. Um, so I tend to see a lot of, uh, or if we want to get into the five, I tend to see a lot of hunting as tradition. Absolutely get into the five. Yeah. So hunting as tradition, you know, we hear a lot about like, okay, my family's been hunting for generations, like a traditional use in the woods and like it's our American heritage and yada, yada, yada. What about how it's like, um, like about how humans hunted for so long? That, does that roll into tradition too? Or don't you... I, it does, but way. I didn't. Uh, that's not how I operationalized tradition for this particular yeah. experiment. I didn't get into. You're uh, looking more like family level, yeah, lineage yeah. level, family lineage. level for sure. 
Um, which and I see a lot of marketing appeals around that certainly. And I well, I oh, have my it's own. Used, my, I have my, it's used very heavily yeah. in marketing, and that's why what what that, that's why I was kind of surprised. What you, what you found about yeah. that surprised me a teeny bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Some of the other things you found didn't surprise me at all, but that one surprised me a little bit, just based on the fact that some people think it's such a good idea to approach it that way. Yeah. I mean, there's some like, caveats that'll People like, how in the hell can you hunt and kill a deer? Be like, well, my family. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, uh, let's talk about the results after I guess yeah. I lay so it out. Because, because there are caveats, right? So uh, first is tradition. The second one, one that I hear a ton, especially uh, in whitetail country, is like, why do you hunt? Like, hunting is important to control game populations. Full stop. Like, I hear this one. This is the one I hear the most. It has zero elaboration on it. Well, home, now you're telling control us. Control game population. Oh, full stop mean they don't say anything else. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's like it. Like, Got to control the game population. It's like, man, mm-hmm. I can think of plenty of species that are worthwhile of hunting, and it's not necessary that we knock down their numbers, right? Like, it's, right. it's just a fundamentally, fundamentally bad argument, I think. Um, because, yeah, I've always had a problem. Because it like implies that if you don't need to knock down a population, you know, that's overpopulated, that somehow uh, hunting isn't viable or, or worthwhile. Yeah, that's the thing. I, when that comes up, the thing I always point out is uh, when people say like, "Oh, they're overpopulated," I always point out by like, there's someone making an estimation here based on based on something. So when someone says deer are overpopulated, mm-hmm. I'd be like, you know what? The guys I know that are hunting deer in that area don't feel that way. But I know that the automobile insurers yeah. in that area certainly feel that way because yep. they're paying out for a lot of deer car collisions. I know there's agricultural interests that definitely feel that way. Home gardeners. Home gardeners yeah. definitely feel that yeah. way. So it's always like when someone says over The hunters are like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. more no They're like, ah, fishing game. I only saw 25 deer on opening day. Um, last year I saw 35. So that's the thing I always that's the thing I've always had a hard time with. Not that I have a hard time understanding it, because you can say like right now there's many people mm-hmm. who are saying snow geese are overpopulated. One might say, by what measure are they overpopulated? And then the answer would be by the measure of the carrying capacity of certain Arctic habitats where other birds have traditionally nested. By that measure, which affects you none. Mm-hmm. One might say snow geese are overpopulated. The guy hunting snow geese in eastern Montana might wish there was even more snow geese. Or the same way, like people always say carp are overpopulated. But then they complain when the carp shooting sucks. You'd think they'd go out and be like, we had a great night. We couldn't find any carp. Mm -hmm. So it's really tricky. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash 
Meat Eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs and here's one of those buddies max not the dog but the buddy i've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states u.s and canada different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees and it just doesn't stop working i'm a fan for life get 20 percent off your first purchase using code meat eater so go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated doesn't matter outdoor events turkey hunting playing sports beach days mountain adventures summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick it's clear why liquid iv is the number one powdered hydration brand in america tear pour live more One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Yeah, I think the concept of overpopulation is uh, you bring up a lot of really good points there, but like, uh, but it also implies this sense of like, okay, whatever metric I'm going to use, you tell me something's overpopulated. Whatever metric I'm going to use, that's the benchmark I'm going to use for whether or not I think hunting's yeah. Like because a pe- good no, thing. people right. say it all the time without yeah. probably thinking about it to the level that we just discussed it. I grew up hearing that all the time. Yeah, you need to hunt them or they become overpopulated. Yeah, I think we've all heard it. Even though, and it's just something you hear, and it's only later after you like think about these issues and look at them all the time. You'd be like, overpopulated by what measure? Mm-hmm. By the measure of the man raising sweet corn? There are a lot of raccoons. Yep. By other people who go decades without laying eyes on a raccoon? Not. Nah. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. That's number two. Yeah, I mean, we hear, about, we hear about it all the time. And frankly, I was like, well, I certainly have an assumption about how I think this will impact or not impact attitudes towards hunting. But, you know, it's, it's an experimental method. Like, maybe I'm wrong. Let's test it. Uh, the third one was one that we hear all the time. Uh, hunting for food consumption, where we just emphasize the like organic, clean nature of, of the food that we're harvesting. Yada yada. I expected to. Wor- I expected it to work. I don't think any of us are surprised about that. 
it's used quite heavily in hunting media. I think it's a good thing. It makes a lot of sense, but I just felt like I had to include it. Yeah, it's used more and more. Like yeah. 10 years ago, people weren't talking about it. Oh, really? It. No. It's new. Oh, wow. I mean, it's like a new... Not they weren't talking about it, but it's changed a lot. You know, there's a... You know, you know the historian Randall Williams. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, well. he's looked at that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess it's like, you know, in some... A lot of media outlets have tried to tie it into like uh, this new type of hunter, you know, like what what describes the uh, oh yeah, you're always, you're always hearing about yeah, and, it's so funny like the whole like hunters. the new like the new hunter thing. It's always like people pushing like the new hunter is always people who uh, want to be like you know like the the conscientious the ones kind. who care. It's like, the ones what the hell who, are you it's like oh yeah, like, they unlike care. all the people I grew up who uh, all, all the depraved individuals that I grew yeah, up around who hunt. Hipster, not not hipster. those guys. I've heard some forums but the new on this kind. Jeez. You know the new kind like me. We only just care. started caring, Steve. Yep. <laughs> they care. Yeah. Well, they only just started eating the stuff they killed too. <laughs> oh yeah, but it's like it's like the same kind of people. You know, it's like when people found out. You know, like uh, like how bacon became fashionable in the media for a long time. Because like, oh, bacon is yeah. so good. It's like yeah, no shit. I mean. You know, my grandpa or whatever, you know, people have been eating bacon since the beginning of time, but also like you discover it and you can't just have it be that you discover it in the way that it's just like, people been eating, like people, there's certain segments of the American population never like discovered bacon. It's been eating like religiously consuming bacon. But then there's like this new subset finds out about it and they want to act like their bacon trip is way different than everybody else. It's like their bacon trip is more inspired yeah. and like means more. Than the the bacon trip that the rest of the country's been on forever. Yeah. So like, oh yeah, yeah. You you think you like bacon? <laughs> I really like bacon. You don't like? It I'm like gonna I get like a bacon it. shirt. Yep. You know. Yeah. No, man. I totally agree. I mean that that gets me. I think I heard uh, some radio forum where they had representatives from. They got someone from uh, like a like a professional kitchen to give their viewpoints on cooking. And then they were like, oh, well, we got to find someone from the country. And they got someone from the country to give their perspective on hunting. And they're like, but you know, there seems to be a rise in like real conscientious, like ego hunters. He's like, yeah, that's like how we've all, like, I don't understand oh, what you're trying dude, to like tell drives, me. Like, drives me yeah, insane. To, yeah. So um, anyways, yeah. So, so food had to be included. Uh, and then there were two that I hear, uh, among certain populations. I mean, you guys, you guys certainly have talked about this, but there are two kind of pro-hunting perspectives that I was particularly interested in, uh, in addition to testing whether, like, tradition I was interested in seeing if it worked or not. Hunting, hunting is population control. I was like, mm, I'm not sure if it works, but I'll include it. Food, I had to include it. But then the regulatory structure and the revenue around hunting, I was interested in whether these arguments would change non-hunters' attitudes towards hunting because... When you, I, I think a lot of non-hunters, like urban non-hunters, the majority of America, I think when you bring up hunting, a lot of them, honestly, in my own conversations, really think it's like, well, I guess just like it, during the fall, it's tradition that you just like head into the woods with a gun. Like just no concept that it's regulated whatsoever. Yes. And when I start talking about state wildlife agencies and uh, you know, population monitoring, and then based on that data, allocating tags and season lengths, et cetera, and carrying capacity, yada, 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 and how the decisions are made and, and what the steps you have to go through to hunt. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it completely opens up a new world for people. Oh, my God, I had no idea. That oh, I had, I've had dinner with many, many people when I was living in New York who had no idea. They thought, it just, they thought honestly, you just, it was just like you go in the woods. Bring your gun. And you just shoot what you see, and no idea that there was like a a a Byzantine network of 
regulatory measures in place. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, like on the one hand, I'm like, wow, that's a bummer that that's how they're viewing hunting. But on the other hand, let's say someone who, who thinks that way uh, has a negative perception of hunting. It's like, I can't be that mad at them. Like, yeah, I wish they knew more, but it's like if they honestly think hunting is just like showing up in the woods and shooting the first thing that runs across me, it's like, all right, well, I can see how they may have come to that conclusion. Yeah. Like certainly they're wrong, but, uh, but yeah. So I, was, I wondered what the effect of, of laying out um, kind of in the simplest possible way the regulatory structure of kind of state management uh, would do to attitudes towards hunting. And then the last concept was uh, the revenue generated by hunting. And this, I didn't use the like full economic impact analysis that looks at outdoor, you know, sportsman jobs and things like that. I was just looking at the sales from hunting licenses, tags, and stamps, as well as the Pittman-Robertson Act and kind of that cyclical uh, form of revenue structure, right? So, these, so the single largest source of revenue for state wildlife agencies is is hunting, right? It's a hunting licenses, tags, and stamps to the tune of, and this is a conservative estimate from a couple of years ago, uh, $800 million annually. Yeah, 60 to 90% of their operating. Yeah. So, so you get 50, we have 50 states, obviously. We have 50 state fish and wildlife agencies. They have different names, but you know, you call them like fish and game, agencies. fish, wildlife, and parks, wildlife, you know, associate, not never association, but anyway. Division of wildlife. Yeah. yeah, Department of Natural Resources, all these different names. We get one for each state. So across the country, those departments derive 60 to 90% of their funding mm-hmm. from um, coming from hunting-related sources, not just like where the state government imposes taxes on the population and then takes that tax revenue and distributes it around these different agencies. That's not how they're getting their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's kind of staggering, the figures, really. But they're, yeah, they're generating most of their funding from tags, stamps, uh, and licenses, right? And they use that money to do wildlife research, habitat improvement, access enhancement, uh, enforcement of existing game laws. They do a lot of non-game work. So this is, they don't just like, your Department of Fish and Game, despite the name, doesn't just work on game, it works on non-game species. If someone, you know, if there's a problem with a, a great horned owl, that's as much that person's jurisdiction as any other animal. So it's, it, they do an enormous amount of work with this money. Yeah. And I think what's, what I like about um, the structure so much is when you add in the Pittman-Robertson Act, right? So they have yeah. all this money. Let's so break that down. 1937. Yeah, so they got 800 to a billion dollars from this state level licenses, tags, and stamps. 1937, the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act gets put on the books, more commonly known as the Pittman-Robertson Act. And this creates an excise tax on hunting equipment, right? So it's only going to impact hunters. If you're purchasing hunting equipment, 10 to 12% of that, depending on what you buy, is going to get put in this federal fund. Yeah, like, right? like very select, a very select list of items. Yes. Firearms, ammunition. It doesn't stray too far into yeah. like... Like if you're not hunting, you're probably not paying this yeah. excess. And there's a similar thing with fishing, which is very specific fishing pro- products. Yes. Rods, reels, line, some dingle, boating stuff. Robert, dingle Johnson. Dingle Johnson, yeah. Um, which is a great name. <laughs> Hell of a name. Great name. I, yeah. Dingle Johnson. Pull myself back and chuckling right there. <laughs> Um, yeah, but this Pittman-Robertson Act, you, you have a federal fund that's, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars annually, right? Let's call it like two to $400 million. Um, and the way that it works is your state can apply for some of that federal fund, but you have to adhere to several stipulations. One, and this is the most exciting one for me, is all that money that you generated from licenses, tags, and stamps has to be used 
by your state wildlife agency, you know, whether it's Department of Fish and Game or whatever it is. Yeah, because they'll, can't pi- be they'll like, pill yeah, for that money absolutely. off. Absolutely. Totally it would totally get spread around the whole state. Um, so it's like, well, if you want some of this federal money, you know, you can use it uh, in many ways that you want to, but it has to stay within the domain of the Department of Fish and Game. Uh, also, the specific project that you're requesting, so that's the state money. Like, you have to use that state money on wildlife. For the federal money that they're applying for, uh, it has to be approved by the Secretary of the Interior, so it can't be like just some totally unrelated, non, you know, non-fish and wildlife or habitat-related uh, project. So it has to be approved. And then lastly, uh, just to round out this, I really like this from a regulatory standpoint, to round it all out, if you don't use that money that you've been allocated by the federal government, in two years, it goes to the Migratory Bird, uh, what is it, Mi- Migratory Bird Conservation Act? Yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, it's, great. It's, just a, it's just a nicely functioning piece of regulation. And with so much bad regulation out there, it's, uh, it's really nice to see. Oh, yeah, the, the story, I mean, we'll not get into it now, but the story of how that, that uh, suite of legislation sort of came to pass how quickly it went through, how much support it had. Mm-hmm. In such dire times. Yeah. The Affordable Care Act, I think, was it took 13 <laughs> months. The Affordable Care Act took 13 months to make its way through. I think that that, and, and during the Great Depression, made its way through in 80-some days. Yeah. I mean, Affordable Care Act really took over a century, if you think about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And people like, the manufacturers who are going to probably lose sales because the increase in prices of their goods mm-hmm. supported it. The people who were going to be paying it, hunters, yeah. supported it overwhelmingly. And I'll tell you something, 1937, there wasn't shit to hunt. People have a short memory where they think that like, everything's gotten like, progressively shittier. Yeah. There wasn't. Like, you'd have whole, there, in 1937, you had states that, you had, you had states that there was no turkey and deer season. Yeah. We were out oh, of yeah. game, man. We were out of game. Running low. And people were like, but from that moment of despair came this sort of like great, piece of legislation. So now you've run through all five. Run through all five. Okay, now I want to just do something real quick. Okay. Just for people who, who uh, you know, our friends out there who, don't, who, who, who don't, don't follow things real close. Now, Greg tested five arguments that you can lay on a non-hunter. Let me jump in here. There's a sixth, which oh, is a please. control group. The control group. You know, a control group, you know, yeah. so we can compare it to a non-hunting baseline. They just got a message about like household appliances. Oh, right. You know, because it has no impact on hunting whatsoever. <laughs> you have to have a control group, otherwise, it's like. Well, How do you we... feel about hunting when you consider the attributes of this toaster? <laughs> yeah, right, okay. Like, oh, look at this sponge. So about hunting again. Yeah. 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 So, took five arguments that folks like to give. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Five arguments that you might give if someone were to come to you and be like, "You're such an asshole. How could you shoot a deer?" You might say, "Hey, man, my family's always hunted." You might say, "That's what I eat." You might say, listen, me shooting that deer brings a lot of money to wildlife conservation. You might say, it's not like I'm just randomly going and shooting a deer. I mean, biologists have determined how many deer are out there, what the surplus is, what we're going to wind up having anyways, and they set this whole season, and there's 10 days, and we only have 10% success rates. Mm-hmm. And you might say, what was the other one? Oh, Gotta knock hey, down. if I don't shoot them, they're coming for they're, you. They're coming your They're windows. coming for you, and they're going to beat your door down yep. and kill you with their deer hoofs. Yep. Okay. And then disease is going to kill. And then the disease is going to kill them all anyway. We won't have any. <laughs> so now, which, so what which of these are gold? Which of these are gold? And which of these are garbage? Well, we got a series of non-result, like stuff that didn't work and stuff that did work, and I think there are interesting consequences for each. Hunting as tradition, what I'm calling the tradition argument. Yeah, me saying, hey, man, my dad hunted. Yeah. 
didn't do anything. Non-hunters do not care about it. They don't care about my dad. It kind of makes sense, right? It's like, well, just because you guys have been doing it for a long time doesn't make it worthwhile, right? Like, when I put that to, I put something similar to a, I put something similar to an animal, uh, to an animal rights activist. I was actually interviewing an animal ethicist and, and I put that to him and he, he, his, his well-rehearsed takedown of that line was, we've always done everything. I mean, humans have always raped. Mm-hmm. Humans have always had war. Yep. So just because we've been doing something doesn't mean that that's good. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. Yeah, no, because I proceeded to then rip holes in that. <laughs> but anyways, he had a well-rehearsed reply to that. And he, and yeah. he, you know, that was a chip I don't shot. think it it's fundamentally shot. compelling in a no, short package no. such as you would get in a conversation. Not fun, yeah, not fundamentally compelling. Now, as part of a broader tapestry, of course, it can become interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I will give the caveat that when we talk about what makes hunting uh, resonate so well with the American public, there are historical, sociological, uh, lots of perspectives you can take that you would need to get a holistic picture, right? Yeah. And this first step by me was strictly isolating yep. elements of various... And, and uh, people yeah. weren't buying it. And, and what worked and what didn't in this, in this very isolated environment. Um, yeah, so... Now, why do you think it is that... You think because it's like... Because of what I'm saying, because like, well, that just the fact that you did it doesn't make it right. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, I don't want to. I don't really want to get into why because the, the data don't speak to that. It just didn't see, work. Yeah. But but my assumptions are exactly what you're saying. Just because you've done it for a long time doesn't make it an inherently good thing. Humans have been doing bad things for a long time. Yeah. they've been doing good things for a long time, but the length has has no bearing on it. Right. Okay. How big was the group? Uh, the sample was 600 people. Uh, so, Did anybody be like, oh, okay? Well. <laughs> Did anybody? I'm sure there's like one one person, one of two people in that condition uh, who were like, "Yeah, I feel more positive towards hunting." Uh, but, 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 you know, uh, but statistically, no. It was, statistically, no. Yeah, okay, yeah, uh, which is the the important part. That's right? the one. Like, because it can't be binary, right? It's not like works don't work. It's like worked on Steve. Yeah, but say like, okay, so whatever the sample size. I mean, like, how much didn't it work? I mean, it, like, it really doesn't work. <laughs> well, then you get into a, like a discussion of of what significance values means and you get into mathematics. Okay, what is insignificant? What does that mean? Well, the conventional level of significance numerically is uh, a p-value of less than 0.05, which I guess has popularly been described as the relationship you found has less than a 5% chance of having happened just by coincidence. Okay. Um, Which I'm sure there's mathematicians and statisticians out there who are just losing it at the, uh, at the radio right <laughs> no, now. No, but, so but, they, 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 but listen, I, have them send, their, have them send yeah. their hatred my way. No, it'll come my way too, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, these guys are fine. No, but up. defer it to me then because I'm <laughs> okay. putting you in an awkward position. I'm putting um, you in I, I But recognize. it just did not meet, uh, it didn't meet 0.05, it didn't meet 0.1. I mean, it yeah. didn't meet the conventional levels. And you, and can it's I, not- can I, I want to help you out here because I feel bad because like your whole training, right? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm asking you to do things that fall way outside your comfort zone and way outside your training. And I find that when I'm talking to researchers, you know, my brother's a researcher, so mm-hmm. I'm talking to researchers and I'm like, well, what did you hope would happen? It's like, you can't have hope. They're like, you, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, right? Yeah. So yes, I'm pressing you to, I'm pressing Greg, our guest, I'm pressing him to, 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 to you know, Put a shine on some things that yeah. didn't fall outside. So, well, I mean, I can admit to like I certainly had assumptions about what would and wouldn't work, right? And and hope is an interesting word. I didn't hope some would work and some wouldn't, but I, you know, I had my own guesses. I was like, oh, I bet, I bet this one turns out right. Yeah. But you know, if you use a, a scientific method, 
it should tell you the truth. Right? It's if not done like, well. It's yeah. Not like, oh, I got an idea. I'm going to make this tradition one work. You yeah. Know? Like, si- yeah, <laughs> science done properly. And yeah. that way, it's probably almost good to be a little bit aware of your biases because then you can help make sure they're not running Absolutely. away with you. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it's good scientific practice. Okay, so um, so you're not you're not going to spec you don't want to speculate. It just, it's just a, when you say like why it didn't work, that no falls outside of your research. Significant difference in people's attitudes towards hunting from time one to time yeah. two. Now, okay. So the population, uh, I think during time one, I sampled about a thousand people. I got their attitudes towards hunting using kind of conventional uh, survey questions. I recontacted 600 a couple weeks later, randomly assigned them to one of the six conditions, the five perspectives in the control group. And then use the same question to reassess their views towards hunting. So it's within subject, and that you can compare this person's, uh, you know, these individuals' answers at time two versus time one, and see uh, within subject whether there was any change, right? Yep. And so for tradition, there was no statistically significant change. Just dead or yeah. dead. That's what you put on your report. Yes. Oh yeah, it just nothing happened. It didn't go the other way. They didn't like get angry about hunting. It just you know because we would have picked that up too. Oh, like you could have measured the bad. You could have measured the bad fired. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, That'd be interesting. It doesn't backfire. It doesn't backfire. It just does nothing. Doesn't do shit. Just keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Rather rather do that one. Well, (laughs) it's a little bit early to to talk about this, but it's like uh, I think using the tradition argument is good in certain contexts, right? Oh, so yeah. we're talking about perceptions of hunting from non-hunters. If you're BHA, you know, and you're, or you're RMEF, and That's you're trying ba- to- He's backcountry hunters and anglers oh. at Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. All right. yeah. and, and you're trying to like generate donations or membership. Hell yeah, talk about tradition. Like, oh. yeah, that might resonate Dude, with- There's a number of conservation organizations, some which I'm involved in, mm-hmm. who, when speaking internally yeah. for marketing, they push it very heavy. Because people, that's because people, because people within the hunting world do care so much about that. Yeah, I've yeah. talked about this with uh, with Landon. I mean, I'm one of those hunters who responds to it. You know, like yep. I, yeah, it works on me. But I'm not a non-hunter. And the reason that I'm interested in non-hunters is it's like if we are going to continue hunting and keep enjoying kind of the model we have in front of us, like we are absolutely going to have to rely on non-hunters. Yeah, and it's really nice that they generally have a positive uh, view of hunting right now. But uh, but we've constantly got to be vigilant that's why i'm always dude uh, you're bringing up my favorite subject i'm driven this crazy thing I like dudes about. are like i've had someone recently who was like dude the antis can kick rocks i'm like that's a ludicrous position kick to rocks they said kick rocks yeah huh i mean like, the kick, like, oh yeah no, i get, I get what say, it, go pick mushrooms i get what it means but it's like it's like so old timey you can pound this sand. Was a, this is pretty old time. Yeah, pound sand. Just you know? like, yeah. I just now we don't have more, care what they think. We have more like, expressive yeah. Well, our, our privilege to hunt is at, really at the whim of non-hunters. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, no, uh, that's my favorite subject. But let's, let's, so, yeah, let's, so let's go on to the next one. Tradition didn't work, but I'm not saying it's a bad argument to use with hunters. I mean, I'm a hunter. It resonates with me, you know, for sure. But amongst non-hunters, in my sample, it didn't work. The next one, population control. Uh, you know, we got to hunt. You know, many, many hunters, when, when polled, say that uh, hunting is important because it controls game populations. Didn't do anything. That surprised me a little bit in that, as much as we just talked about it, because this. I think when people, most people in the country live in whitetail deer country. Mm-hmm. Most, by far, whitetails account for like the most man hours of, of hunting time, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think when people say like game hunting a lot of people are automatically jumping to a deer hunting right? yeah oh yeah i think most people when you say and hunting, people think about do live in fear and deer heavy areas it's a thing where you're like driving along at night and you're hoping that you don't hit a deer yeah 
and everybody over over time in these areas, which is like the, the majority of the country, you or someone you're very close to hits a deer, right? It's a thing. I'm surprised that people don't, that it doesn't mean more to people assuming that what they're picturing when they hear the word game is deer and what they're picturing when they hear the word overpopulation is you hitting one of those deer with your car. I think it's a, I think it's a valid perspective to have. And I mean, but it just doesn't I've measure tried, up. It doesn't I've measure tried up. even looking at the sample, like isolating to whitetail country, which oh, is, a, really? which it's difficult. Okay. Like, honestly, if you think like, am I going to do this by States? If like, where am I going to draw the line? Really? Uh, and, and frankly, there's a lot of, uh, if I run into people who don't hunt in the West, they're still thinking Eastern whitetail, like tree stand whitetail. If you pulled heavy drinkers in rural Midwestern areas, yeah, oh, who yeah. are dri- people who are driving home one, two in the morning, <laughs> I think you would find... Hard drinking gardeners <laughs> in the Midwest. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I agree. And, and this gets back to my last point, which is like, yeah, there are definitely populations out there for whom these arguments resonate. Yes, yes. You know? But this is a... Yep. You know, kind of a wide sample. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, what, yeah. My point would be, I thought that, like, I would have thought that that would have that that those things it would have just been basically you're asking people about their feelings about white-tailed deer, yeah. and they would have answered based on their <laughs> likelihood of crashing into one. Yeah, I mean, but that might be just a reflection of where I grew up, where hitting deer was like a daily part of life. Yeah, man. Know? I yeah, so. it's a uh, yeah. I you know, I wasn't sure about that one, frankly. I like, I didn't. I didn't think it would work, but when I was actually doing the kind of geographical controlling that I'm talking about, I was like, well, I bet it works in, in the Midwest, right? And uh, I couldn't find it, um, but, you know, who knows? At least for our sample, it didn't change attitudes towards hunting. It didn't make a negative, but it was just yeah. flat, like tradition. Can now, you, another question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, can you explain what it sounds like when someone's attitude about hunting changed in this, when you asked the question the second time? Like, what was the first answer, and then what was the second answer? Um, well, so I'll give the, uh, I guess I'll give the structure of the experiment. So during time one, in addition to like several demographic questions, we asked, uh, how do you feel about hunting in the United States? And there was a sliding scale from one to seven from like uh, really support to like really oppose. And you could just pick a numerical value between one and seven. Uh, and then at time two, you were exposed to uh, one of six arguments. Uh, and this is actually interesting because you guys have seen them. They're animations Mm-hmm. Instead of like, they're not, people aren't reading about I've this. I've seen three they're, or four of them. Yeah, yeah. They're seeing animations. And the reason that I did animations was, let's say you get the population control argument, which is an inherently short argument, right? I think the clip itself is like 15 seconds. And it's something to the effect of like many hunters, when polled, uh, say that hunting is important because uh, it's necessary to control for game populations. And then the clip kind of ends, right? But if we're talking about Pittman Robertson and we're talking about state wildlife agencies, like those are inherently longer arguments. And so I thought, if this is going to be text, I'm going to show people text passages. What we're going to do is we're going to have people's eyes glaze over. If you're yeah. not hunting and you're reading about the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act of 1937, you're going to be like, this is the worst experiment I've ever taken. Yeah, then you're more like yeah. studying Give people's me a break. reading and comprehension yeah. skills. Yeah. You know? And so I thought, how can I package these different length arguments in ways that will still be like standardized in terms of digestibility? And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll make some animations. I have a buddy who's an animator. And so that's why we kind of did and that. And they're really like clean, cut and dry animations. They're not sort of meant to, there's not like a B-roll and meant no. to look pretty. I mean, they're like. They're straightforward. I mean, it's for scientific purposes, right? They're straightforward. They're clean. They're, they're made to be. There's like no bias in them. No, I mean, you know, when you get. I mean, into, they're not like zippy. Right. Yeah. Um, they're, not, they're not trying to sell anything. Um, I, I guess you could make the argument that when you get into making something like an animation, you're going to have some kind of implicit bias. But I did my best as a scientist to make them as 
objective as possible and just reflect the text passages I wanted them to reflect in, in the simplest yeah, possible yeah. way. Um, and then after they watch this, right, and remember it's been like two weeks since I asked them the first time, mm -hmm. uh, they get the same question. How do you feel about hunting in the United States from the one to seven scale? And so you can see like if they answered, you know, three, you know, slightly opposed, and now they answer five, that's an increase of two, right? And, uh, and how much they, you know, they have, they are now, they feel statistically different about hunting than they did at time one. And yep. the reason we have the control group is because, you know, something could have happened in the interim. You could have had uh, Cecil the lion happen, you know, one week after I asked him. And then it's like... Was it Cecil? Uh, Cecil, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Whomever the lion <laughs> could have happened in the middle. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, you know, you could have had some outside influence that is accountable for, uh, for whatever uh, kind of relationship you're finding, which is, yeah. which is, of course, the importance of the control group. So that's, so that's generally what it looked like. Um, so, yeah, tradition, population control, just flat. Food, like we all expect, st statistically significant. I think, it has, I, had the, I think it had the largest coefficient as well, and that it was the most impactful argument, uh, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think we've talked about it kind of ad nauseum, so I, it's not, like, terribly interesting to me, but people generally, or non-hunters generally, respond favorably to hunters talking about... Um, you know, going out and sustainably harvesting food and it's organic and you don't have to rely on factory ranching or farming. And, you know, people yeah. are generally amenable to and that. I think people, too, are, are generally uh, kind of pragmatic, man. I mean, people don't like shit to go to waste. Yeah. I think that, that when you explain to them, it doesn't go to waste. In fact, it's, 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 it's good. Uh, it feels good to them. Yeah. It feels better. Like, I think there's a, like, this impression that it's just like, uh, oh, you're like cutting their head off and you're hanging on a wall and then, Think rots in a ditch. I mean, I think and when you explain to people, oh, you know, actually that's that's illegal, and people, you know, go to jail and lose their hunting rights for doing shit like that. I think sometimes people feel like they, they feel sort of relaxed about the issue, yeah. knowing that that's the case. Well, I didn't talk about uh, like game use regulations or like uh, waste or anything like that. It was it was more about um, you know many hunters when they're hunting talk about uh, how they you know they'd like to be able to come home, give food to their family, and that they describe meat in recognizable terms such as like you know, sustainable, organic, free range, yeah, and yeah. they don't have to go to the grocery store and eat factory produced uh, meat. You know, very straightforward. And again, a lot of this is uh, just, you know, an artifact of me running an experiment, right? Like I wanted to be able to isolate it. And if I uh, joined that argument with the argument you're making about game waste laws, then it's like, oh, well, which is it? You yeah, know, I'm with you. Food I'm with you. Um, yeah, and, and so that one worked. I, you know, I think it's a, a definitely a great tactic to use um, with, with non-hunters, and I, I think it's totally valid, too. It's not, these, remember, these aren't just like marketing strategies. I think a lot of them have validity, and certainly sustainably harvesting your own food uh, is valid. Um, now, the most interesting result in the whole experiment to me was the regulatory structure. So simply explaining the fact that hunting is regulated by state fish and wildlife commissions and that they have wildlife biologists whose job it is is to monitor populations and then make decisions about what that entails for the hunting season. So, you know, theoretically, you could have a population that is so low that they determine, hey, we're not going to hunt, or so high that it's going to be like, hey, these are over-the-counter tags. Or in the middle where it's like, okay, we're going to do a lotto. You know, we're going to do a draw for this. And that there is a feedback loop, a constant feedback loop on, hey, we're managing these populations. Oftentimes, there's a mandate for longevity or perpetuity. Uh, and the actual biologists are out there making decisions about who can hunt, how many people can hunt, when they can hunt. Um, and that worked. Just explaining that. No, like, hunting is good because of A, B, and C. Just like, here's the regulation surrounding hunting. 
and we yeah. just broke down basically state fish and wildlife agencies. And, um, and we didn't say anything about the ESA or anything like that. This is just state level management and people's attitudes towards hunting improve. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. And it may, <laughs> I guess on a really abstract level, uh, level, it's like it's heartening, right? I love yeah, to hear that's that. Great, like, that's, just, you know, I was struggling for what it was. Yeah. I was struggling for the right word. It's heartening. So I think that it's easy to fall into this trap of being like, oh, anyone that doesn't agree with me, it's just that people yeah. are so dumb now. And, yeah. And I'd be like, no, because you know, oftentimes people have... You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, people like have an opinion, and maybe they're not totally married to it. Yeah. And then you present them with some information, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I feel yeah. better about that now. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it was definitely heartening to see if you just present people with, with some facts. And, you know, people can only make deductions about what they're exposed to. If you present them with some facts, that they will, in fact, you know, uh, ingest them and make a, make a decision after that. And that it, in fact, does make people more positive about hunting was huge. Um, and, and you know, can, I tell, can I tell you a quick story? Sure. The other day I was walking down the road near here and some guy was handing out flyers about how he wanted to get a four-way stop put in somewhere where there wasn't a four-way stop. I was initially resistant to the idea because I just, you know, yeah. just general wariness about more rules. Remember I talked about change? <laughs> dude, I have this. I have people with clipboards on the street. Then the dude told me this. He showed me a bunch of stuff saying, in fact, four-way stop will probably speed things up at this intersection. Wow. And I'm like, all right, I'll sign your thing. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. I didn't know that that was true. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it is. I was, but he swayed, I was <laughs> swayed by. I was swayed by data. I went from not wanting to. I went, I went from wanting to tear his clipboard yeah. up to sign him one of his pieces of paper. Well, it's compelling stuff, and it's. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, <laughs> in my sample, a lot of people were like you, right? Yeah. Like, and it, it was also. This was by far the densest possible perspective. It's why we had to create animations, right? Yeah. And it still worked. I mean, oh, I for sure. It. Because, yeah. yeah, you're dealing with... And you're not making any emotional argument about, like, my attachment to hunting. It's like, yeah, I do have these emotional yeah, you do feelings the food hunting, one. But you it's like do the I food can... one in caveman language. Yeah. Me eat. Yeah. It's just like, here's the regulation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was a really cool finding, I think. Um, and that was probably without explaining to him, like, how dense and how hard it is to understand those freaking regulations books, right? Yeah, how we just laid it out. I mean, we had little animations of, like, calendars and, it's a good video, and though. licenses. Yeah, I think we might... Um, it's not manipulative, but it's a, it's a great video, I thought. It's not manipulative. I would hope it's not manipulative. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like, again, it's like you did a yeah, good job. It's yeah. like, you're not like... Uh, I, I, like, if, I, if someone said to me, like, make a video like that, Oh, you'd make a I would have taken video. a way different approach. Yeah. But you're like, yeah. you were able to sort of stick to the mandates of your job yeah. and be like, how can I... I mean, just good experience. Yeah, how can I just like explain it without weighting it in one yeah. way or the yeah. other, you know? Because I would have been like, these wonderful, really smart biologists. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, I think I might try to repurpose them and, and release uh, some of them to the public, you know? Because I think like... Honestly, it's thrilling just, that just explaining uh, the regulations surrounding hunting is making people feel more positively towards it. I think it's huge, and it gives us uh, another perspective aside from food. And, and like I was telling Steve, we really need non-hunters. Uh, you know, hunters are at the whim of non-hunters. Uh, we really rely on kind of their uh, judgments to give us the privilege of hunting. Um, and so the last condition is uh, the revenue surrounding hunting, right? And I broke it down earlier. And that was interesting in that it worked when moderated by people's self-reported strength of environmental beliefs. So there's another question, right, that was like, 
I, I had to ask it vaguely because I didn't want to go down rabbit holes of like trying to define what environmentalism is because it is a loaded term, right? Yeah. But I asked, um, you know, how strong are your environmental beliefs? I, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of that on another sliding scale. And the higher your environmental beliefs or the higher your concern for the environment, um, the less likely a revenue argument was to work for you. But if you the less likely, yeah. So, but it's oh, interesting. When you told me about this, I thought you meant the opposite. The less likely it was going to work. So, for people who are like, like I'm a hard hitting environmentalist. Yeah, but I'll tell you why. It's because I, I, I still feel like I'm getting you wrong. No, you're no. telling me that a hard hitting someone who identifies as a hard hitting environmentalist mm-hmm. was less likely to be swayed by the by the financial impact of hunting and fishing licenses on wildlife conservation. Well, it's that last thing you said on wildlife conservation. In an effort to isolate the revenue argument, I tried to, I mean, in some ways it's uh, unavoidable to tie it into conservation, but the emphasis in that particular condition was not like, and all this money goes to conservation. I mean, I of course had to talk about it when I had to talk about it. But how do you say where the money goes? I did say, you know, this money has to be spent by the uh, State Department of Fish and Game. But you don't get into what they do with it. I, I said things like habitat improvement, but it, I mean, the bulk of the video was very much focused on just like, here is the money generated. You know, you've yep. got $800 million in uh, licenses, tax stamps. You got an additional few hundred million dollars with the Pittman Robertson excise tax. And that's like $1.2 billion. See, I would have showed a bunch of panda bears and lions and stuff <laughs> drinking out of a water tank. Together. I think we had some trees and a couple <laughs> animals at some point. But, um, but yeah, like if I was, if I was, was you know, if I took off my social scientist hat and I was trying to make a pitch around the revenue, I'd absolutely hammer the fact that, like, look, all this money is going into conservation. And I think that that's, uh, that that's a valid argument for sure. But I was just trying to isolate, like, I wonder if just a strict money argument surrounding hunting mm-hmm. can, actually, uh, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, can actually affect attitudes. And for people who did not self-identify as an environmentalist or, or say that they were high on the scale, it did work. Which okay. kind of makes sense. I know you don't do why. Why? Well, all right, I'll get into this one. And I think it's because, like, if you really care about the environment, someone's telling you, like, this activity generates $300 million. You're like, well, that's great, you know, but, I, but does that impact the environment? You know, like, is it actually good for the environment? I don't care how much money it's making, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and so I think that's what's responsible for going on. I'm making assumptions about that, but that's my best guess, right? Is if you really care about the environment, you're like, okay, listen, all this money generated is great, but I'm not... You know, you haven't told me about, uh, you know, why hunting is good for the environment. It's, see, that's a really tricky word, too. Just environment, environmentalist. Because, like, in my own lifetime, um, early on, like, an environmentalist was basically, that means you didn't like uh, litter, right? Like, yeah, the earliest yeah. part of the environmental movement was, like... Stop littering. Was, was interpreted to be, like, don't throw uh, fast food wrappers out the window of your car. Yeah. Which is just aesthetics. Like, you think of Monkey Wrench Gang, the yeah. Edward Abbey. Ed Abbey. Yeah, the guy throws beer cans out his Hate car it. window yeah. because he hates the damn road. Mm-hmm. He's like, the road's the problem. It's not the beer can. Yeah. I'm defiling the road, which I don't like. So that was one thing for a while. Then it was like, for a while, I interpreted the environmental movement as a young person to be that it was synonymous with animal rights, which is like my interpretation mm-hmm. of it, right? Now I think when someone says, like, are you an environmentalist? Now it's becoming sort of saying, like, how do you feel about human-caused climate change? It's almost like, you know what I mean? Like, the word is... is um, it, it, it's a proxy. 
yeah, it moves around in creepy ways. Mm-hmm. You know, not, creepy is not the right word, but it just moves around. It attaches itself to things and forms these sort of like uh, vexing relationships with certain issues. But then, and I used to always really like the word conservationist. But now there's almost like a battle there because conservationists for a long time had a, I feel, that it was that it was tightly connected with basically like hunting, like hunting and hunter fisherman based environmentalism mm-hmm. would would go under I, conservation. I still think that's too large. Degree. No, because they're stealing our word. <laughs> they're stealing our word because they know that their word has a neg- their word has a negative feeling in the American mind. I think there is a negative connotation of the world. So now environmental groups are being mm-hmm. like conservation mm-hmm. has a more measured, practical, you know things up and open on top of the table kind of feel to it. Yeah. And environmentalism makes people feel a little prickly. Yeah, I totally so agree with that. So they're hijacking our word. I mean, I strategically use both. Drives people nuts. Like, I'm an environmentalist, I'm a conservationist. Like, I think, I, I do really too, think mess, the line, I do, I do people don't people. like to say that it's the same thing. No, but I do it to mess with I people. I think the line is so arbitrary. It's just I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm a hunter. You mean, meaning I'm an environmentalist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, I do the same thing. That division drives me crazy. It's oh, no, I, I use it to mess with people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I do too. Absolutely. Um, I think, honestly, it's like, I, I think because I study politics, it's like environmentalist, oh, you're a liberal. Conservationist, oh, you, That's oh you're a conservative. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's a, it's a proxy for So I like to toy with it. I like to just use both all the time and tell people the divisions. When I'm talking to lefties, when I'm talking to lefties, I do use, I do try to speak of myself as an environmentalist as being like, I have way more in the game than you do as a hunter environmentalist. But yeah, but if I'm talking to like some old, it's really adversarial tone. Oh yeah. But if I'm talking to like some old timers who might not know what I'm getting at, then yeah, I use like, we all play little games. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got to have source credibility with your audience, whomever it is. Right. Yeah. And I certainly do that. Uh, And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how to wrestle with ideas, man. Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, there's so many more things I would love to do in this domain and I'm, uh, it'd be exciting to crack into more. So I I wonder what the reception uh, to this. So what will happen with your stuff? You're going to put it out there. So what I'm going to do... Don't you think you uh, should not put it out there? Just let, just <laughs> leak it to the proper people so we know how to tailor our arguments to win? Because once you put it out there, it's going to diffuse it. I don't think so. I mean, it's not like these aren't heavy-handed marketing appeals that I'm testing, right? It's not like I was doing these pitch videos. It's like, let's see which one works best. Yeah. You know, they're just straightforward arguments, and I think people are reasonable enough to see that. Like, all the arguments are actually... Like, they're all factually accurate. Uh, the population control one being in some specific instances, it's actually accurate and others it's not. But they're all just like accurate assessments of pro-hunting perspectives. Um, and you're going to publish this in a, in a public... An academic journal. But don't you want to do something yes, for like yeah. a... Because so, you and I have talked about doing air? something. When does it air? Whenever we get around to it. Okay. <laughs> it's waiting in line. Sometime <laughs> right. within the next eight weeks. Eight weeks. All right. So I believe around by the time... we got stacked yeah, up. Pr- probably January. Okay, perfect. So by the time this is aired, this... The article will have been submitted to an academic journal within the realm of uh, wildlife uh, management. Oh, yes. you're going that route. I'm going both routes. So, and here's why. So I'm submitting it to an academic journal so it'll go through peer review. And people will see, like, this is a legitimate study. Yeah. Like, this, I have no, I like scientific that. I like approach. that shit, man. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I know what I'm doing. Um, it can stand up to peer review, and it'll get published. And then I, I would love to do a popular... Uh, piece surrounding this. You know, no one's going to go, oh, let me get on JSTOR and look up some academic article about this. But they will read something and 
I don't know, New York Times, WAPO. I mean, I'm probably shooting way too high, but, um, but I'd love to do no, a popular... No, I don't think you are. I'd love to do a popular cover of these findings and, and write that up in uh, kind of a more holistic approach because then we'd, we wouldn't have to be so kind of broken down into our like, social science hat, like, oh, well, I can't talk about that. You know, oh, I can't make assumptions about why they felt that way. You know, you really can do these things if it's an op-ed, um, but I want people to know that when I'm referencing my results... It's not like I just did, oh, yeah, I did some study on my computer and now yeah. I'm going to write an op-ed about it. It's like, I, no, that, that's a legitimate study. I know, I know it's controversial in your community, in the academic, you know, in the scholarly world, but I think there's great value in, in, in learning how to sort of like translate some findings and help people make sense out of stuff. It is controversial and I agree with you, for sure. I think like, like you know, people, people like to burn on pop science. Yeah, but people like, like to lambast. Like like if a, if a paleontologist or an archaeologist is working on something, and then they come out and do a a, a popular piece, mm-hmm. and and don't and don't stress all the caveats quite enough, and like and stress how subject to um, you know how how subject to error the radiocarbon dating might be, that then they get raked through the coals. Mm-hmm. For like overblowing their data, yeah. When it's like, what is the net? What's the like the net goal? I feel like you might say like I feel my article made the public a little bit smarter. Now, sure, we could have withheld all the information, you know. But isn't the end thing to sort of like enlighten people around you? I mean, in a strict- just, I, I've had this conversation with so many people. It kind of drives me nuts to have this aversion to being to people saying like, basically, here's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I mean, I've witnessed tons of arguments uh, surrounding this. I happen to agree with you completely that it's, I mean, in a strict academic sense, you could say I'm only here to further our knowledge. You know, and it's like, people want to read my stuff, they'll see that we have advanced human knowledge down the field, right? But I agree with you that um, there's nothing inherently wrong. And I, I see a lot of good coming from covering this in a more accessible, popular manner. And that you can encapsulate your arguments and speculate maybe as to what that entails without, you know, delegitimizing science. And Especially gonna, if you've and gone someone's going to pick up on it anyway, though. So. Yeah. Like any kind of yeah. like groundbreaking work, it winds up getting interpreted by journalists anyway. Yeah. So if you could be in a little bit in the driver's seat mm-hmm. and help, if you could see through the publication on your own and be a little bit in the driver's seat to help them avoid some of the pitfalls that are out there all the better because if you have something earth shattering people are going to write about it and mess it all up anyhow i agree i mean yeah i totally agree and i read an archaeology piece recently where it's like someone interpreting something in a journal and i'm like there's no way that the that the researcher would agree with the way you <laughs> encapsulated the findings yeah i think the tide's there's turning no in way they would like a it. little bit that that people are becoming um kind of more friendly with the with op-eds about their work um, I hear what's funny is that is it true that uh, most of the time you don't get to pick the headline that the editor picks a headline yeah that's generally true that one gets me man because it's like you can have, people choose these like clickbait inflammatory headlines and well yeah but different but different organizations have um, you know some organizations really have they have a system in place that keeps things like somewhat neutral right Mm-hmm. And some things just go for inflammatory bullshit. But yeah. some places, you know, you wouldn't be able to pick it because they would be afraid you'd oversell it. Yeah. And in some places, wouldn't they would be horrified. I mean, I'm not, you know, the conversations I, I'm hearing aren't from like clickbaity places, but it's probably people with their academic hats on being like, oh, 
You mm-hmm. didn't quite capture the caveats I was talking about in that headline. Exactly. So no, it's exactly. probably that natural exactly. tendency. But, but I certainly have no problem with, the, with going into the public domain. And I think that's my ultimate objective. I think, which is, as an academic, you know, it's, that'll probably rub some people the wrong way, that the peer-reviewed piece isn't my ultimate objective. It's like a way to demonstrate that what I've done is scientifically legitimate. And then I want, yeah, I want to talk about it with people. I want to get it out there. Um, and yeah, I hope the hunting community kind of looks at it and... Uh, I don't know, maybe make some smart decisions with it. I don't know. I think they will. I hope so, yeah. It seems to be resonating with a lot of people that I'm talking to, but I could be in our, you know, the modern loke of war green hunter who all of a sudden... The new kind of yeah, hunter. The, the one that now cares the new about one. wildlife. Not right, those old one. ones. Yeah. Just, yeah. Not those, <laughs> not those ones from last roots. year. Those ones from this year, <laughs> yeah, man. They're the good ones. Um, I, I've told a couple of people about it, mm-hmm. your, your stuff. and uh, how, they, how they react. Like surprised. Very interested, yeah. anxiously awaiting to. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. No, I mean a couple of people within who work in the world, you know, marketing worlds and things. Yeah. And, uh, and I told them that I'll be like, wow, you know, I leaked a little bit, but I said you have to you have to t- check with him when he gets his stuff done. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope it's interesting. I, I think a lot of the organizations I naturally think of are marketing to mostly to hunters to retain membership or drive membership. Yeah. So it might not be totally, um, you know. Totally particular to them, but uh, but I, yeah, I think more generally, man, we gotta we have to make sure that um, non hunters really understand that like it's not a bad thing. I'm thrilled they support it, and like here's why: there are legitimate reasons. It's not just marketing appeals; like regulation itself. The more you know, mm-hmm. you know. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches 
at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Yeah, you got concluding thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah. It's on the heels of that, it's like we can't go around patting ourselves on the back and sitting around going, yeah, it's, we're going to raise our kids hunting and fishing. It's going to be great. Everybody's going to keep doing it forever. we got to get everybody else on board. Yeah. So it's well, good to know how to talk to That's your concluding thought? Are we can to conclude. <laughs> and you've always said that, you know, venison diplomacy. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that's... Yeah, that, well, way. that was your I number thought, one. Okay, I thought you meant something different. I thought you meant something different by your concluding thought. No, I was saying that it seems like hunters are real good at hanging around bullshitting with each other. Yeah, oh, yeah. And being like, yeah, hunting's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we got to reach out. We can't just talk in an echo chamber. And then it's like, like you said, they're just like, yep, no, we're just controlling deer populations. Yeah. And they have nothing more to add to that. Now you know, you can throw that one out. Yeah, to add something different in. Add talk, talk about food. And but yeah, I'll point out too, if you're going to use the food one, don't be a bullshitter, man. Take good care of your game meat. Don't just start talking about stuff that you have no organic interest in, but you're just using it because you like the sounds or you know it works. What's so, grinding your gears there? Who are you thinking about? No, I'm just saying, live. If you're going to, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to talk, talk. How's that saying go? Walk the walk. Walk your walk. <laughs> no, I agree with you there. It, there's, a, there's a little bit of that going on in hunting social media. I, I don't know if we can, uh, you know, how, how much. We, I'm not going to slam anybody in particular, but there's definitely some of that that goes on where I feel like. Oh, I, a huge degree. I, dude. I see a lot of like this, like, it's the only organic meat. It's all I eat, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, like. I don't think you've even broken down your own animal once. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Every animal you ever killed went down to Steve's meat market. And the whole thing. Oh, I know. I think, I, think it's, I think it's, journey, I think it's rampant, know? man. Um, I recently was talking to someone who was talking about some person that, you know, killed an elk and they were able to roll it in the back of the truck. <laughs> and later they had it in a butcher shop and they were there breaking it down in like a meat locker and, he took the leg out and put it in his backpack and went back out to do the pack out photos. Oh <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. I I, I've been there. I've driven a few uh, mule deer around the back of the truck to different, you know, precipices and, you know, nice vistas. You, you got out and you carried the deer up there and took a picture. Well, no, via truck. 
But to different locations. But was the truck? Oh, to do like to do grip. No, no, no. We took him out of the truck (laughs) to do grip and grids in various places. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I think that's common practice. It's like that. That for the guys that are really into grips. But that's different than doing like uh than going out to rolling in your truck and then later going out and doing your pack out shots. Yeah, that's just disingenuous. Oh, pack out shots. No, pack. No, no, no. Not grip and grins. Gotcha. No. Rolled it into a truck, took it into a meat processing place, grabbed a back leg, put it in a backpack, and then went out and did a photo series of packing the meat out. Nice. Yeah. It's like some of the folks packing out antlers in the magazines. I'm like, what in the world is this guy doing? Like, oh, yeah. Some dude on top of a high, high peak with yeah. just a set of antlers. Yeah. Oh, it drives me nuts. It's like, you mean to tell me? Hold on a minute. You're telling me that marketing has lied to me? <laughs> no. You mean you usually don't pack on antlers the whole time you're hunting and bugling? You don't usually do the same? Thing? Yeah, yeah. That's another classic. Is a dude with a pair of antlers strapped on his back on a peak ripping a bugle. He's like, I got one. I took the antlers off it. Now I'm going to get me another one. Just poaching. I have a concluding concluder. And just so I don't steal Greg's, because he's going to get the final glory with Keep It Public. So we're going to I got some. I didn't do, my, I didn't do mine yet. I know. I've got several. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stick this in here right now so that I don't have to say anything later. Or I'll add to something later. But Greg's well aware of this uh, little topic. But Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, it brought me the perch flies. I'm on the, I don't I'm the know. guest for this, I, man. I, I don't, Those are perfect. I don't know how good they are. So no, that was, is the exact. I was going to jump in the fire. That is the exact perch fly. On air to see if they'd work. Now, you can see <laughs> my daughter was helping me last night, and she saw the uh, pink calf tail. And she's like, well, you got to tie up a couple with that the pink. That is the man, perch fly. Think it'll work? Dude, it's the exact first one. Now, I had a couple guys. I had a couple shame. extremely generous people send me a couple perch flies, and they were good. But these are the. This is what my. Now, here's the thing. This this is what my old man type. Like, I, like the guy that invented this fly, is a commercial bait fisherman named Ron Spring. Ron was my dad's fishing buddy, and Ron made his living. When you went in and bought live bait, Ron made his living catching live bait. On hook and line? No, no, no. All kind of ways. Oh. He supplied crayfish. He supplied uh, wax worms. He supplied wigglers. He trapped leeches. He trapped shiners, minnows. He was a bait fisherman. He supplied live bait stores. Mm -hmm. And this was his fly. Now, my old man fished with him. You know, these are guys that would fish 200, 250 days a year. And this was their mile man, his friends, Al Cole, Ron Spring. This was the fly they use through the ice for yellow perch. Exactly. Oh, that's through the ice. That's not for open water. Not just that. This was the fly they would also use when the big white bellies were out in about 100 feet of water in Lake Michigan. That fly. Interesting. Now, Dead I did nuts. A, that's calf tail, and I couldn't tell by the picture. Now, you know why you want to yank? You, know, you want the, the shank naked so you can put, so you can string a bait up on her, perch eyes or whatever. Like a lot of times we tip it with a perch eyeball. See, that's bucktail, yeah. and I was having a hard time keeping it 
I short I usually trim. I usually trim those. Oh, you do? Well, yeah, you you're not supposed to because people like the natural end, right. but I trim them. Well, there you go. I left the barbs on for you. After how many years now? It's about two. <laughs> I'm stunned when I hear this. Like, I don't know what to say. It's not a complicated fly. He just never got around to it. I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm a listener, too. I think we were all following this saga. No, you, you should see now my little workbench in the basement. Looks like I'm uh, practicing fly tire again. Man. You know, what's funny is I just gave my brother a giant bag of perch fillets, too. So I need to restock. All right, what other kind of conclude? Is that how many more concluding thoughts you got? I got no more. Unless I add in on what you guys were going to talk about. I was going to read to you about the uh, definition of a sportsman. We can say that for another time. Oh, please. Is it long? Not too long. But this is, this is what Grinnell wrote. Well, and it just came to mind because I was reading this. Can we name this paper? Can anybody go read it? Technical Review, the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. Put yeah, man. The Wildlife Society. Yeah. Very informative. Everybody yeah, Greg, should you should do it. a study where you call some up, make him read that son of a bitch. <laughs> make him read video. that son of a bitch. Be like, you got a day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. I'll call you back tomorrow after um, you've read this thing. I'm going to have some hunters come to your door. Oh, you're looking for something right now? No, no, no. I was just saying that, well, what can, there's like six um, points that define a sportsman. And the, the final one was, will not waste any game that is killed. Um, is that know, old? In, yeah, this was written in the... That's Grinnell. Thir, that's Grinnell, yeah. So George, thir, right? Thir, yeah. George yeah. Bird. George Bird yeah. Grinnell. Um, so yeah, don't be a bullshit artist. You can talk about food. Eat yeah, it. Yeah, live it up, man. Do it. People can smell bullshit. Um, my kids discover the word bullshit like they love it but they like it too much for their age um, <laughs> all right now greg yeah uh i don't have a concluding thought but i do want to ask so you you've started a group keep it public yes so keep it public is uh basically dedicated to showcasing the diversity of individuals who support federal public lands right because I think it's all too easy if you look at rhetoric on either side that it's like, oh, that's a liberal issue. Or, uh, or, oh, that's a hunting issue. Or, oh, that's only for backpackers. And it's like, okay, on the one hand, we need to show that support for federal public lands is cross-recreational, right? Everyone who recreates on it um, needs public land to kind of ply their pursuit, right? And then you've also got these political divisions. I think we were talking about earlier, and I think you were talking about on a previous um, previous podcast that it's in the GOP platform right now that we should divest uh, public federal lands. But of course, there are plenty of Republicans. There are tons of Republicans who support federal public lands, including legislators. Uh, legislators. And I think it's important to really showcase the bipartisan nature of the overwhelming support that the American public has for federal public lands. And I'm just, because I study politics, I think I'm really wary of this issue getting pegged into a left-right spectrum that's yeah. just like... But I think I know, and I remember one day when that was in there, and that made it into the that made it as a, a plank in the platform, mm -hmm. and um, it was disheartening. Yeah, it was disheartening. Absolutely. And and, uh, and again, as much as I try to not look at, you know, I, I don't look at things in a real partisan way. Um, 
it, it was disappointing to me that that made it in there um, in the agenda of a party who I who I support a great deal of their work, but I just I have a real problem. I have yeah. a real problem with the fact that that's uh, part of the. I do too, and, and I really don't like at all that it's been attached. Like it's because it's now just entered the partisan realm, right? And it's yeah. now like, well, you know, are you a bad Republican if you support federal land system? And that absolutely shouldn't be the case. I mean, Republicans. Dude, I've hunted with a hell of a lot of Republicans on public land. Yeah, absolutely. And, but they, I mean, there are <laughs> all of them lots of Republicans, of course, who who really uh, care about this issue and are every bit as passionate about. I mean, you don't have to be a Democrat to wholeheartedly love federal public lands, and I think that's what we're trying to show. Yeah, those. If you can battle to keep that from becoming mm-hmm. like a knee-jerk partisan yeah. issue, yeah. So our little niche is like, we've got all these great organizations that are marketing to a base. You've got hook and bullet marketing to hunters and anglers. You've got the REI backpacking scene, as I like to call them, marketing to your liberal hikers, right? Yeah, but those guys haven't done shit. Well, we'll get into that. But what Keep It Public (laughs) (laughs) is trying to do is we're not marketing to a base. Your job is to battle that sentiment. Right, to a degree, yes. And, And what we're really trying to do is show that, hey, the only official stance we have is that we support public lands under federal management, and we oppose any land transfer to so the states. So you support federal things that are currently... We support the existing model. Yeah, not the things that would be transferred or somehow, or somehow seized and, yes. and deprivatized. You're saying the federal public lands that yes. we have right now mm-hmm. should stay that way. Absolutely, and I think a land transfer to the states uh, will just absolutely lead to a net major loss of public land access, whether it's sold outright or whether it's managed in a different way. And we're trying to show that this isn't just, you know, liberal Bay Area uh, hiking and biking, I want my public lands. This is everybody. And it's not just recreation either. I mean, we're planning on uh, doing a piece with ranchers. There are plenty of ranchers who support federal land. I mean, right now in Montana, it's nine or 10 times cheaper to graze your cattle on federal public land than it is uh, the next private land. And a lot of them have no illusions about what will happen if federal land is transferred to the states. Uh, we've also got uh, industrial perspectives. I have a friend who's a lawyer for an oil and gas company. And you know, the way, the way they talk about uh, federal lands is, you, know, you might think from an industrial perspective, they just, they just hate it and they can't wait to, for it to be privatized. But you know, a lot of them are fairly happy with just how dirt cheap federal leases are. Is that right? You know, it's a mixed model, right? We're not just a, you know, we're a bipartisan coalition building group and it's not just bipartisan coalition within recreation we're also trying to involve ranchers and uh, and industry and part of that is i got i get so fed up with like people looking at the bundies right and they'll be like cowboy hat wrangler jeans like yeah they might be a little bit extreme but they must be the extreme side of the position that i feel right Mm because like look at me i'm a rural western american so they like must they're a little bit beyond the pale but they they must be on the right side of this coin and no, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we should let these people kind of capture the imagery of the rural American West because there are plenty of rural Westerners who support federal public lands. Yeah, but those guys stand for a lot more than that. I mean, like, I stand for um, paying what you owe mm-hmm. and not exploiting contracts and owning up to your responsibilities. And they definitely don't. Yeah. Expand on that. Well, I mean, you've... If you go out and run cattle on the Ameri- on and land owned by the American people <laughs> and rack up a debt of close to a million dollars and don't pay for what you did, that's just like being, that's just called an asshole. It's theft. Yeah, it's ridiculous. 
Yeah, but I mean, at the same I mean, like, time, did, did that that becomes like heroic to sort of that all of a sudden it's like this like great American heroism to default on contracts. I think people are just like, oh, I mean, they're rejecting on. a tyrannical government. But I honestly oh, yeah, think yeah, a lot of yeah. people are. Yeah, in a way that benefits you financially. Yeah. Now, if you're rejecting a tyrannical government in a way that hinders you financially, that's a lot different than the way that being like, I don't want to pay this money. How can I make it look like I'm on the right side of this? Yeah. I just think like personally in this era of, you know, uh, judging issues and articles by basically headlines, I think it's real easy for people to uh, see some cue about like I'm rural. They're wearing some clothing, or they're talking in a way that makes me think they're rural. Therefore, I must be with them. Yeah, I right. think there's a lot of people who aren't just engaging with the policy or the issues, taking the easy way out, uh, or maybe just aren't as you know. It, it could, might not be malicious. Like frankly, I'm a nerd about this stuff, right? And <laughs> like they might just not be as interested in federal land policy. I can't really blame them, but it's very easy to look at some simple, you know, interpersonal cue and be like, well, they're with my group. You know, oh, yeah, they're no, conservative Westerners. They're with me. And it's like, no, plenty of conservatives, plenty of Republicans support federal public lands. And so we're going to basically market bipartisanship and market kind of cross perspective support for federal public lands um, because we don't have a membership base that we're trying to retain or drive. Uh, we're basically just trying to remain viable. So we sell hats, shirts, stickers, vinyl decals um, to just say keep it public at keepitpublic.com. And 6% of all these, uh, of all of our profits are split between three partners. So we've chosen the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and the Outdoor Alliance. Uh, the first two are, uh, of course, you know, I think the listeners will be familiar with those as kind of hook and bullet uh, advocacy organizations. And then Outdoor Alliance is an umbrella group that um, has many, I guess we could call them like non-consumptive uh, recreational interests under it. So you've got mountain biking and climbing and hiking and um, I'm not sure if bird watching is under there, but you've got kind of, uh, you know, the non-consumptive recreational interests. And, and so even when we're choosing our partners, we're trying to make sure that everyone is represented, right? We're trying to have a, a broad tapestry. Uh, so 6% of every purchase is going to go towards that. And we're not really looking at the company as, a, as really like a, an income generator, right? We just want to, we're not under any illusions that just selling hats and shirts is going to, get us rich at all, but we hope we remain viable enough to keep doing things like uh, I'm working with the animator from my experiment to make a uh, linear kind of historical overview of how federal lands came to be. Because I think if you just look at how federal lands evolved, I mean, from the 13 colonies through, uh, you know, purchasing Alaska, and then how we've switched from a model of aggressive disposal to retention. If that's just laid out in a straightforward chronological history yeah. over the course of a couple minutes, it's really hard to come to the uh, come to the position that somehow federal lands are illegitimate. Oh, that's the thing people try though. It's like the guy. It's like the guy you meet down there, like in a bar, who's like, you know, if you read the Constitution, you don't actually have to oh, pay taxes. I, I got to talk about that. You know, you always find guys like that, or guys who somehow like done this cl careful, close reading of the Constitution, realize yeah. the federal government can only <laughs> own Washington D.C. Yeah. Well, I'm going to directly <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So you always going to be like, is that right? Okay. I'm going to make that okay. my concluding thought, get into the Constitution. Go ahead, get into the Constitution for a minute. Yeah, so, so this is my pet peeve is uh, land seizure folks like the Bundys mentioning the Constitution. Usually there is like legitimate gray area and debate about interpreting the Constitution. Federal lands is not one of those things, right? The property clause is unequivocal that like federal lands are constitutional. For over 175 years, 
the Supreme Court has never wavered in citing the property clause as making federal lands legitimate. I mean, that's a ton of different makeups of the Supreme Court. It's never wavered. They've never interpreted, interpreted the property clause as meaning anything other than something that supports federal land. So just straight out, federal land is legitimate constitutionally. Now, they're not as relevant, but it kind of... Uh, relevant, but it, uh, it kind of begs a response. These guys are always, like the Bundys are talking about the Enclave Clause and the Tenth Amendment a lot. The Enclave Clause, it just, it doesn't really make much sense to, uh, to talk about. They're talking about these federal enclaves that are like military installations and things like that. Um, constitutional scholars are kind of baffled about why they bring this up, because it does nothing but really offer kind of like tangential support for federal lands. It's just not really that relevant. Actually, what, what I think is happening, and this is uh, really amusing is that and Snopes did a piece on this. I think they actually believe there are a few sentences in the Enclave Clause that straight up don't exist. Oh, really? Like there's uh, and, and people like it's written in a way that looks constitutional. I'll say like no state should, you know, without its consent. Well, they're looking at like bogus stuff. It's just information that isn't in the Constitution, and they cite the Enclave Clause, and people are like, why the hell are they citing the Enclave Clause? Like that doesn't make any sense. And as far as I can deduce, they're they're like literally citing information that's not in the Constitution. Uh, we have a link up on Snopes on the website. When people bring that up too, I'm always wondering, like, like with, with those boys, I'm always wondering, like, so if they didn't own it, what makes you think you own it? Yeah. Well, it, this 10-mile thing you were it's talking like, about. It's like, because if you're, like, you're running cattle, and you're, you're, you're old man, you guys are running cattle on BLM land, but, like, if it wasn't BLM land, it wouldn't just be, like, sitting there, yeah. come one, come all. It's some guy that owned it. Yeah. And you still wouldn't be running It'd cattle be on it. Yeah. I guess everyone likes to dream of themselves being that private landowner. Yeah, but to be like, for me to be like, man, I wish my neighbors didn't exist, then I'd own their house. I'd be like, no, it'd probably just some other thing would own their house. It's a ludicrous <laughs> perspective to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah, and then there's the 10th Amendment, uh, which basically anybody using that to talk about federal lands is just ignoring the property clause. I mean, it's not like there's healthy debate amongst the Supreme Court. It's like, Federal land is extremely constitutional. This 10-mile thing that I've heard sometimes is ludicrous. I mean, it's in the Enclave Clause, I believe. That's like that they only own Washington, yeah, D.C.? Well, yeah, it's either in the Enclave Clause or... I believe it's in the Enclave Clause, and it's talking about uh, the seat of government. It's just talking about how big D.C. should be. Federally managed. No, I mean, no, it's no. like, how did you but extrapolate I don't think that, that the real, the I don't think that the, the... I think that that's like such a fringe... Like, that approach mm -hmm. is a fringe approach. It I think a lot of people look, and they're like, sure... The federal government, like, you know, legally owns its federal lands, but I just feel like it's too much and it's not administered in a way that's friendly to industry. And however it came to be is fine with me. I just think we should change what it is. Yeah. That's I, probably the dominant view. I totally agree. I'm just saying a the, pet yeah. peeve of mine is these people holding oh, up the constitution. No. I'm like, read the thing. Yeah, no, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. It, it's like, it's just, it's one of many things where it's annoying whatever side of it you're on. It's just annoying because if you just, get where you just like dislike misinformation because mm -hmm. i'm perfectly comfortable i'll debate I'd, I'd love to debate about it but i'm perfectly comfortable with a guy who's like no i get it it's all fair and square i just think we should do it differently and we're mm -hmm. a country that changes all the time we're always changing our rules reassessing our priorities and right now my priority is freeing up more of this land for extractive industries yeah. i'm like okay you're entitled to that opinion now hear me out i'd love to have the conversation but when a guy comes and says, like, oh, yeah, that they can't own it all anyway, I'm always like, oh, I, like, I don't even know where to begin, dude. Right. I mean, it's like we're not even on the same planet.
I agree. I mean, the former that you're talking about, these, these people who are engaging with it but just have a different belief, uh, it's not like Keep It Public is just straight-up rhetoric. Like, this is what we believe, and like you're either with us or against us. We have a detailed policy statement up there right now, uh, and we talk about, you know, the three arguments we have is, you know, federal land is historically consistent, it's constitutionally uh, protected, and it's fiscally advantageous. I think if you take a long-term view of economics and industry, you will see that this mixed model that we have is, uh, is the most viable way forward economically. Like, I, I always buck at the idea that it's like, but I totally agree with you, and you've said this on previous podcasts, I don't think that everything should have to justify itself in economic terms. Yeah. And I think this land falls into that. It just so happens it does that too. And I buck against some people who are like, well, it's just industry versus this mixed model. You know, it's but like, a lot of states are, are not a lot. There's some states, some very conservative states, I'll point out, coming around saying that having looked at it, they're feeling that it's not advantageous for them to assume some of the financial responsibility of management of lands. Yeah, I believe that was a fiscal analysis that was mandated by some legislation that the, that the big-time uh, land transfer advocates, advocates were pushing for, and they were like, oh, don't yeah. want that. And the state's like, yeah, because you could have... You incur a ton of expense. You could have a cataclysmic wildfire bankrupt your state, Yes, and states don't have a lot of the fiscal elasticity of the federal government where they have to live within budgetary constraints and they're like we don't have like our citizenry doesn't want to take on the responsibility of properly administering this land and administering it in these days Mm -hmm. comes down to fighting fires like most of the forest service budget a huge fights fires yeah shit's expensive and i think some people now are looking at being like as much as it's supposed to be a great selling point industry that's happening on these public lands as it is is generating jobs Mm -hmm. And they're getting dirt cheap leases. Like in our state. Are, yeah. And it's like, it's like we have a lot to gain and, and uh, not a terrible lot to lose. And it, it's a good system for us. Yeah. And I mean, even if there isn't a wildfire, uh, you know, it's expensive to manage this land. Plus, the federal government gives each state uh, what are known as payments in lieu of taxes or PILTs. So if you transfer lands, uh, it's, it's taxes that they would have made uh, on revenue generated from uh, the current industry on those lands. And yeah, I think the states are looking at it and like, wait, we now have to pay to manage the land we're not currently paying for. Plus, we're giving up the payments that we're getting from the federal government. And I think there's an argument to be made that, because some people would be like, well, I support public land, but, you know, this is all just like fear-mongering. It'll still stay public when it's in, you know, when it's in state control. And I don't believe that's the case at all. For them to keep... Well, that hasn't been borne out by history. Right. And for them to keep, let's say, theoretically, that this happens, for a state to keep the current level of public access it would incur enormous expenses. And the only viable way to do it would be to jack up taxes on everybody. That's not going to happen. Like, no politician's going to be like, I just, like, I really jacked up your taxes because I want to keep all this public access. Yeah. Like, like, you know, no, you just, you just all look Wyoming at, like, is now paying much higher tax. Like, it's not going to happen. No, and, and, I mean, just, if you just kind of generally pay attention, state control of lands, they're and not so, as, they're not as, uh, state lands are just not as open generally as federal lands Mm -hmm. to camping hunting atv use there's a lot of restrictions on it and they carry a lot of financial fiscal restrictions where they can't run deficits and oftentimes have to sell land look at i mean texas got liquidated virtually all their school trust lands over the years yeah and i mean that's that's the land that actually stays in state control i mean most of so it's i think a lot of people think that like the federal government is like increasing its land ownership and that's not the case it's it's been uh, i mean it's diminished uh, by a few percent since 1990 right like 
the tap is going in the direction of from the feds to the states. Yeah. Um, and some of that's like land, you know, there's land swaps that happen and stuff yeah, all the yeah. time. I'm not saying it's all like that, that it's uh, emblematic of a, like of a larger land transfer, but... Um, what, 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 I'm, what I'm encouraged by... But a lot of that land just gets privatized outright. You yeah. know, like the state lands that are open have restrictions, but a lot of the federal land that's transferred to the states just gets sold outright. Yeah, and again, if people who want to talk about how state land doesn't go private, go look up Elliott State Park in Oregon. Yeah. yeah. Selling a state park. Yeah, look at how much land has been sold from Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada. I mean, it's alarm. It's staggering figures. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing that gives me a little bit of hope, and I don't know because I think he's, he's going to be, we've brought this up a couple times now, he's going to be under a lot of pressure from his adopted party, but uh, I heard Trump speak in January of last year, and Trump said he has no interest in dumping federal public lands. Yeah, I want to talk about that. And so, I, 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 you know, we, we've talked about it before. I understand he's going to be under a ton of pressure. I, I know that he also, in a lot of ways, doesn't have a lot of use for party orthodoxy. Um, he's been willing to butt heads with um, some of his fellow party members on a number of issues. I hope he can butt heads with them on this. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly our responsibility to make sure that he does. Um, uh, yeah, on, a, on another he podcast... Didn't, he didn't mince words. No, he didn't, but... He's made multiple, the Trump campaign has made three statements about federal public lands in terms of if you separate their arguments. One has unequivocally been no interest in selling your, your federal public lands, and we think it should remain under Which federal Which is the one government. I heard. That's the one I heard first, too. Then I, the read first o- one, I read other ones. It was yeah. the first one that came about. I'm like, great. Both candidates support federal land management. Like, the okay. debate's over. My pet issue is like, you know, at least I can focus on other things because that's not going to change. Then there was uh, messaging from his campaign that said, well... If it's under state management, we still support public lands. It's like, well, if it's under state management, you have nothing to do with the land anymore. Like, yeah. Give me a break. And then the third one was um, he did have a meeting with DeMar Dahl, uh, who's a big, in Nevada, who's a big uh, land transfer advocate and spoke to a group there. And uh, Dahl was kind of effusive in his praise of, of that meeting. So I'm not using that as a, like, I'm just because we're talking politics, I, I'm not using that in any way to say that's his true opinion and that these other things are just a charade. But it's just not. You he's, an, he's an opportunist, right? And I think it behooves us to make sure that he hears the, the arguments in support of federal public land and that we hold him to the statements that he's made uh, on our behalf, right? Yeah. Okay, but they have been, it, it's tough for me because some of the statements have been in direct opposition, right? Yeah, I'm not naive enough to think, I'm not naive enough to think that what anybody says. During trying to win Absolutely. a, when trying to, at that point, trying to win a, not a party nomination. I'm not naive to th- enough to think that, that there's really that much validity with anyone says, but um, it, it gives me something to hang on to. It gives me something to refer back to. Me too. And I'm hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I pray that because that it happens, he supported federal land so early in the process that I'm hoping the latter were just artifacts of going through the campaign. As and I know that he has the ear of his son, who's an avid outdoorsman. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's this is a big thing that we're focused on at Keep It Public, is it's like we're not going to, um, you know, tout one party over the other at all. It's like, listen, we the only official statement that we're going to make is that we support public lands under federal management. Oh, yeah, you can't, you tell, can't, you can't tell one party because the, the parties aren't good. The, par- the parties don't do anything for us. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, you got one party, they're great for clean air and clean water, probably generally hostile to hunting and fishing type dudes. Yeah. You got one party, open, welcome me with open arms to hunt and fishing type stuff, but you got to keep an eye on them when it comes to clean air and clean water. Yep. It's like, we need our own party. You know what's interesting? The hunting party. To, t- 
Just re- five, reappropriate we'll get, bull moose. We'll get 5% of the vote every year. Um, um, but to go back what I said, like earlier I talked about how political science couldn't show that we were polarized, the society. What they did show was that the elected officials are polarized in terms of their voting and their rhetoric. Mm, yeah. And I think it's interesting that this, the, party the population, system. right, it, it, it uh, you know, promotes extremists. And I think it's our responsibility as the population to moderate the politicians we've yeah. elected in office, right? That's the frustrating thing about the party system. Absolutely. And it's like a thing you watch again and again, whether it be politicians you really admire, um, and then they go to try to secure a party nomination, and, and you have to watch the very painful process of them morphing into, yeah. of their beliefs morphing into this like thing where like, oh, wow, all of a sudden you mirror... You yeah. magically now mirror... Man, some of it's just pathetic. Oh, it's so sad, man. Let's just end on that. <laughs> um, it's, just, it's so sad. What's I need to go back to never talk about this kind of stuff, man. <laughs> well, it's, um, important. it's important, and I think there's a way to do it where we don't have to be inflammatory, right? Like, we're all you know, fully functional adults. We all have our own political leanings and our own thoughts on, on, uh, on issues. There's no reason why we can't uh, find out where our avenues of agreement are and say okay we can set aside our differences on completely irrelevant topics and at least have a unified front you know on federal lands or whatever other issue you might be looking at where we share consensus right yeah uh, yeah i say yeah but then i also realize that i'm in many ways i'm just trying to put a positive no i'm I'm in many ways like i don't want to say i'm a single issue guy but i'm focused uh i'm focused very heavily on wildlife issues and issues that affect hunters and fishermen and it's it's like a self-fulfilling thing because those are the issues that I'm I know most about and can speak to most competently, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um yeah, and I tend to to view the world somewhat myopically. Or I stay on that stuff. And um so I always talk about how like all this coming together kumbaya stuff, but by that I always mean I hope you come together to think what I think. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, and on the one hand, it's like I hope you come together with me on yeah. what I want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I look at it and it's like, man, are we just like chasing like a utopia that doesn't exist with this keep it public stuff? But on another, it's like if we're just upfront, it's like, listen, the way that we're gonna do this is we're not gonna advocate for anything except this one stance. You know, it's like we don't even have to debate any of the other stuff. You know why we're gonna win? Why is that? Because our guy is carved onto the damn mountain. Yeah. Mm. I like that. Roosevelt's on the mountain. I like that. Every politician wants to liken themselves to Roosevelt. That's right. What did Roosevelt Most do? popular in history. Gave us the public land system. Yeah. So it's like, we're already winning. Mm-hmm. You put up a guy that's going to piss on this whole system and flush it down the drain and make it that future Americans don't have access to public lands and national parks and refuges and national forests, yep. and then get your ass carved on a mountain. Yeah, the GOP ain't gonna happen. Think about TR. Ain't gonna happen. Yeah, that's why I think we're gonna win. I hope so, and I think so too. The mountain speaks. I mean, there's a lot of people who are fired up about this, right? And I think uh, sportsmen groups have been doing the heavy lifting for a long time, Um, and I think it's time that the entire recreational spectrum uh, gets its act together in targeting this federal land uh, kind of avenue, right? Yeah. Like I've noticed that a lot of uh, non-hunting outdoors uh, groups, their messaging seems to just revolve around the national parks. I'm like, the national parks are 13% of the public land. And they're like, come on, like they're not in danger. Oh, yeah, like, it's, all, it's all part of the broader, uh, I don't want to get into it. Yeah, um, okay. 
Um, Let's go jigs and squid. Yeah, we are going squid jigging tonight. Now, Yanni. Two concluding thoughts. Very really? You got more? I got two. <laughs> yeah. Two more. I'll do one. I'll do one. And that is because. Marathon. You do them quick. I'm going to do one. <laughs> All right. It's because Steve brought up the story we were talking about before the podcast and my in-laws, and I feel like I just can't let that lie. There's a very funny. Your wife would listen to this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Why not? Mine it's a funny it. story. I, I, don't, I don't mind telling it. Uh, Jerry will get a kick out of it. That's my father-in-law, Jerry. Uh, so when I, early on in my wife and I's relationship, uh, I was, we went to school in Colorado, and we were down visiting uh, my now in-laws in southern Colorado. And we were, my now brother-in-law, my father-in-law, and, uh, and I were muzzleloader mule deer hunting. And we went out in this truck, an old F-250 with two gas tanks that we called Old Whitey. And uh, it was bench seat. I was in the middle uh, between my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. And we drove out to the National Forest we were hunting. Public land. Public land. <laughs> <laughs> and we got out there in Old Whitey. And we're like crawling along pretty slow. And I figured like, all right, we're going to get to the hunting spot. But he's just going to like drive along pretty slowly. Maybe we don't want to spook anything. And I was a very new hunter at this time too. So I was like unsure of the procedure. Uh, anyways, we're just crawling along and crawling along and just waiting to get to the spot. And uh you know, I'm thinking, God, this is taking forever. <laughs> like, this is taking half the day. It's taking prime hunting hours. And uh, I, I turned to the left at some point because I've been talking to my brother-in-law. And we noticed that as we're idling up this hill, I was actually about to say what it was, but I don't want to do that to their hunting spot. As we're idling up this hill, we notice that Jerry is just flat out snoring behind the wheel. And it looks like he's been <laughs> asleep for some time, man. And we just, oh, we just about died laughing, man. We were howling. I mean, he was going like a half a mile an hour. And... uh yeah, so now I'm convinced when Jerry goes out there and, and hunts, like half the time, he's just taking a nap. You know? My dad's hunting stories, um, as he was older, were always like, and there was, like, and there it was, under my tree. <laughs> yeah. How did we're it like, Yeah, because the reason your stories all start that way is because you periodically wake up and yeah. look around and yeah. just all of a sudden see deer there, but they never, like, approached because you slept through the approach. Yeah, I mean, they're very good at napping. I feel like I have to up my napping. Sometimes. Jeff Foxworthy has that great skit where he's in the tree and his buddy supposedly walks up underneath him. He goes, hey, Jeff, what are you doing? You sleeping up there? And Jeff like wakes up. He looks down. He goes, no, no, I was praying. I was praying. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Is that, okay, what was your last one? That was your second to last one. All right. If you want me to do it, I, I don't want to ramble and take your listeners uh, too much time from your listeners. No, let's just but, do it real quick. Yeah, so I, I, what I've noticed, you know, because I didn't grow up in a hunting family, um, what I've noticed as I've started hunting that's kind of irrelevant to all the politics and stuff we've been talking about is that I've gained much more appreciation for landscapes than I previously had. Like, you know, I think before it was very much in the line of like, yeah, I like the Alpine landscape, right? Like go backpacking in the Sierra or the Trinity Alps. And um, I love going through sagebrush and like antelope country. Like I just love it now. And I, I think... I don't think I appreciated it as much before I started interacting with the like wildlife. Like the nuance, like, the any nuance landscape of landscape I see, yeah. I'm like, oh, well, this is how it functions. Like, this is the utility of this landscape. Like, this is what lives here, and this is how it lives. And, and it's really just increased my appreciation for the land um, in a dramatic way. Yeah. yeah. I hear you loud and clear on that, man. You learn to look at the land. Yeah. You read it. You learn how to look at it. Yeah. Like, I love driving through Nevada. <laughs> Barry like, Lopez. Hate it. Yeah. Barry Lopez, um, who if anything, is uneasy with hunting. But he, he writes about, he spends a lot of time with indigenous hunters. And um, he, he, he has a, a beautiful piece he wrote where he, they, he's traveling with some Eskimo hunters. 
and they come across a bear, a grizzly out on the tundra. And he gets into what he sees when he sees a grizzly, which is he sees the moment. Mm-hmm. There is a bear right there. He says his companions see the grizzly and they see a long narrative that took place before their arrival and they see a long narrative that will play out after their departure. It's like they see a timeline yeah. that they entered into. And I think that that's one of the things that, that hunting teaches you is that when you're looking at something, you're catching it in a moment. Mm-hmm. Even things like successional forests. When I look at a forest fire and, they're, and people are like, oh, the acres were destroyed. I look at a forest fire and I'm like, I'm already picturing that some bitch in 10 years. Oh, yeah. When it's crawling yeah, too, with deer and elk. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you learn to like see this thing that, you know, goes on, on and goes before. Yeah. yeah. And seeing elk out on their winter range is like somebody like, there's an elk. But you see this thing playing out. Like how that thing uses the landscape now, where it probably came from, where it's going to go next. There are many ways to get there. Mm-hmm. Hunting is just the way that forces you to get there. I mean, there are many ways to learn to see the natural world that way. And we by no means have a monopoly on it. Um, but hunting is the way that gets you there very quickly. Yeah. It ma- because it makes it relevant. Yeah. It makes it relevant to you. And um, earlier I said we're pragmatic beings. We're also uh, a little selfish. We'd like things to be relevant to us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, any concluding thoughts? Already gave mine. You already gave yours. Now that Yanni that was gave a good my, one, though. But yeah, now that like Yanni that. gave my purge flies, um, um, a lot of people write in frustrated they can't buy a meat eater t-shirt, but you can go on to hunt to eat. We have some. You guys are going to have some. Are we going to get more? Yeah. So Yanni's t-shirt company, who we boycotted over the purge fly issue, <laughs> um, Sold you Hunty sold us meat eater t shirts. Yeah, we made some for you. And people bought them all. Yeah, how long ago? How long ago was the last one sold? Yeah, probably a year. Really? Wow, and you still got some. We've reprinted. It's just like the the, people that write in because the meat eater store is a mess. It's like, dude, you're right. (laughs) I used to try to defend it, but it's just like, oh. Mess. Yeah, but right now I know that we have some actually at the printer because I know we're gonna have shirts for Wednesday. Like you guys are making more. Yeah. Remember we looked at the proofs. No, but no, I'm saying Hunt Eats gonna make more than oh, I don't know. Hunt Eats. That order has not been placed. There's gonna be more more meat eater T-shirts at the. But you're still Hunt Eats still selling the meat eater Hunt Eats. Yeah. All right. That was was that long? Was that was long? That was it. Was good though. I liked it. Uh, Good out of blast. Blast. You low attention. Thanks for the invite, guys. You low attention <laughs> sons of bitches. I hope you got through that. <laughs> hey, it's Steve here. Are you serious about hunting or self-defense? Well, starting in 1996, XS Sites took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied that methodology to modern defensive handguns, all made in America and trusted by industry leaders. Meat Eater listeners can get an exclusive discount on the XS Sites website. So just go to xssites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout for 25% off. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light.
Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. 